1945, near the end of World War II, U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt, on his way back from the Yalta summit, met on the cruiser USS Quincy in the Suez Canal with King Ibn Saud of Saudi Arabia. The meeting, prompted by Roosevelt asking how the United States had outlasted the mighty German war machine, was motivated by the fact that American oil resources fueled the enormous military build-out that went on to eclipse not only the production of Germany, but also the output of all other Axis countries combined. Thinking ahead to declining American oil reserves, Roosevelt correctly saw and successfully negotiated an alliance between the U.S. and the kingdom that until recently has undergirded not only the industrial world's need for energy, but also America's need for further legitimization of the U.S. dollar in an era of large budget and trade deficits, which came in the form of the petrodollar. Growing from a population of fewer than 5 million in 1960 to over 33 million today, the home to Mecca, the birthplace of Muhammad and Islam, and the center of the broader Muslim world, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has had mixed success in transitioning from its ancient heritage to the fabulous wealth provided by oil. Its state oil giant, Saudi Aramco, is the world's third largest company, as measured by market capitalization at $2 trillion. But looking ahead, with increased calls for a move away from fossil fuels and the rise of China, the kingdom looks to invest in the future while retaining its past and hopes to maintain its central role, for good or for worse, in Middle Eastern culture and politics. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time-stealing. Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, Lance. He's actually returning to the show. And we, uh, we thought we'd do a little conversation about the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. So, assalamu alaikum hey. to everyone. <laughs> and to you as well, Lance. <laughs> I appreciate it, brother. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, uh, my pleasure. Uh, that actually means, uh, I believe, peace be with you, which, uh, hey, that's that's a nice thing to say to somebody, I guess. Um, but for <laughs> a religion based on conquest and Islam, meaning, I think, in Arabic or whatever language, meaning submission, it's sort of ironic. Uh, but in any well, case, uh, Saudi Arabia, that's where it all started. <laughs> that's where they got Saudi Arabians, the Texans of the Middle East. Indeed. <laughs> I, in fact, you know, it, it's, uh, what's that Texan term when you want to kill someone, you say, um, I'll give you peace. You know what I mean? It's kind of funny, but, um, yeah, with your peace. But yeah, I, <laughs> I, I think you're tracking, uh, we, we spoke about this previously, but in the news cycle recently, of course, this is not a new geopolitical occurrence but 
Um, Iran has been seizing a number of commercial ships off of the Persian Gulf. And obviously the United States interdicts and regularly has, you know, issues with uh, the Iranian, um, you know, Navy, etc., especially with their gun running operation to Yemen to, to kind of support the Houthis there. Um, but what does this have to do with Saudi Arabia? You know, like what 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 is going on? And obviously, you know, if you're one of our generation, you understand like uh, the Wahhabist sect and, you know, the Salafist kind of uh, influence with, you know, international um, is- Islamism as well as, you know, for instance, 9-11 and so on and so forth, um, in Saudi, you know, Osama bin Laden, all that kind of good stuff. But the most poignant thing that people miss is that, of course, there's this rivalry between the United States and Russia slash the PRC. Uh, but within the Middle East itself, there are a number of factions that are existing and, are, you know, seeing themselves fight all over the territory. I mean, one of them specifically, of course, principally the Saudi Arabians, uh, the others, the Iranians, and uh, still more is the uh, Turks. And they're all kind of vying for power within the Middle East. And, uh, you know, it, it's just kind of interesting to live in this time, especially because, you know, in the 1990s, of course, you know, um, Pax Americana, you know, it was the end of history. And uh, America's power was universal and immutable. It was, you know, felt at every facet in every country in the world. And, you know, two, three decades later, that is ebbing away. The, you know, the empire is kind of fading away. And in that vacuum, we see these little principal powers kind of vying for supremacy in their region and later on in the, on the world stage. And of course, you know, I, I don't know, we talk about Saudi Arabia, we talk about petrodollar and so on and so forth, but I don't want to... I don't want to keep it going down this line too far, but I feel like it's so important to talk about this kind of almost Machiavellian state, especially because of how closely tied we are to them. You know, no, I think that's 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 a great introduction as to why Saudi Arabia is uh, topical, and I think it has long-standing relevance. Obviously, if you're talking about its role in the oil market, I mean, I think that's obvious to anyone but the um the history of the place is kind of interesting too and i was less familiar with um the origins of the country and many people in that part of the world actually don't regard it as a legitimate country which is sort of gets to what you were saying with all the sort of rivalries with turkey and iran um because the and I'm glossing over a lot here because I didn't want to become a um, Saudi Arabian scholar on my free time. <laughs> but I, I did I did read a couple books and I did um, I did learn a few things about it. And I'd like to share that with people and, and hear what people think and and hopefully discourse with you as well, uh, Lance, and and get get some uh, insight from all this. But what what uh, I was going to say just in brief was that. The, the the rulers of the kingdom, it's called the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, are, are basically the house of the Saud, Saud. And the they're they're basically just a a tribe that managed to grab grab the uh commanding heights of, of the territory, uh through conflict and 
and, and political maneuvering. And they were also able to form certain alliances with the Western world, especially that enabled them to get access to the oil wealth that perpetuated their, their lock on their, uh, their political position. And so even people in Saudi Arabia, um, historically, and when I say that, I just mean basically around the end of world war two and up until maybe the sixties were not really bought into the whole modernization drive that the Sauds were very much in support of. Uh, it's, it's an ancient society. Uh, it, it was actually extremely small in terms of population for obvious reasons, because the peninsula of, of, uh, the Arabian peninsula, I should say, which includes Saudi Arabia, obviously, but also Yemen and, uh, I guess Oman and all the Qatar and the United Arab Emirates and all that stuff. It's a, it's a gigantic desert. And the, uh, Historically, you know, <laughs> we didn't have desalinization technology. And so if you're in the middle of this thing, you are, first of all, you're extremely tough. So hats off to people who can figure out how to live in a place like that. But um, it, it's just not going to support a lot of life. I mean, the plants don't even grow. It's just a bunch of sand. Now, that's a generalization, by the way. There are areas in this peninsula that are actually quite lush. They're obviously... Um, not as common, but geographically speaking, it typically exists in the higher altitudes where the temperatures are colder and the precipitation, um, might, it might even snow in parts of it. I, I don't think it's very common, but, uh, even if it's not snowing when it's raining and it's not super, super dry and hot, uh, the water will, will hang out for a little bit longer and allow plants to grab it and, and grow. So that does exist. There are mountains and that's typically where the vegetation is. And then the coastal regions obviously are a little bit cooler because they have the sort of, um, the calming effects of the, of the water, uh, in terms of the temperatures, the moderating effects, that was the word I was looking for. <clears throat> and, um, and whatnot. And, and there are also, uh, pockets known as oases. And I think that exists in in general in North Africa where there's, there's springs and things like that, that actually the, uh, the Bedouin tribes will historically try to try to find, but these things were not very scalable. I mean, you could only support maybe a thousand people at most on one of these things. And, and at that point you'd run out of water. Um, so the place was historically very tribal in term and very depopulated and very decentralized. And it was really, I think the catalyst of, the second world war, even the first world war actually. So you mentioned Turkey, the, the Ottomans were ostensibly the rulers of that part of the world for a little bit. Um, the Persians actually never were, although the Arabians and the, the Arab empire was actually the rulers of the Persian, uh, part of that empire, but not vice versa. So it's kind of interesting. And that's how Persia, got Islam. They used to be Zoroastrian, uh, to my knowledge. And then they Correct. broke off into this, um, Shia sect of Islam and the Saudis and Egyptians. And I, geographically speaking, I think the majority of the Muslim world is Sunni, 
but uh, in terms of population, I, I couldn't tell you the numbers, but Persia's Shia, uh, parts of Iraq are Shia, and even parts of Saudi Arabia are Shia. And historically, they have not had the best of times living in a majority or at least uh, a a Sunni-controlled country. Uh, and, and Iraq is a sort of interesting uh, to, to contrast it a little bit. I think the majority of the population in Saudi Arabia is Sunni, but the difference in Iraq was that the, to my recollection, the Sunnis were the minority, but that was the party of Saddam and the Baat party. And they were actually ruling over a Shia majority. But in any case, that's, that's a different place, but um, adjacent to you know, the Sauds. You so, know, it's good. It's, it's kind of funny. We uh, we wage a war in Iraq uh, to kind of like you know, obviously displace Saddam and end up uh, making it a satellite of the Iranians. That's right. It's kind of funny, but <laughs> that's <laughs> but, exactly you know, what happened. Saudi Arabia, <laughs> the territory of the Arabian Peninsula. Let's let's say that because I think that's the most important aspect we we should talk about. Because of course the demography, we could talk about that as well. Um, but it's really the place, it's the place of mirages and like, you know, dusty landscapes and I mean, really kind of a desolate area. And of course, we rem- remember a lot of our friends here. We've read, you know, with uh, the seven pillars of wisdom, you know, Lawrence of Arabia and uh, his kind of um, political, I guess, interactions with the heads of the tribes and kind of like how they live as Bedouin. And it's interesting because their pattern of living hasn't changed even from the time of Napoleon, when a jihad was actually called upon him when he had invaded Egypt and occupied. And it's interesting to note that it's like, you know, Saudi Arabia is one of those places where uh, modern technology meets a kind of perennial political organization, one which surrounds people. And tribes and uh, there's this really great book uh, which I like read a long time ago in the military to talk about for instance why is it that uh, you know Middle Eastern armies by and large are so incompetent and that that's the funny thing is that they're, they're just really incompetent at least at modern warfare because of the fact that there is this like um, you know they're trying to integrate this tribal you know political structure within a state you know nation state, military and both of these things kind of have deleterious effects on one on the other and of course rent sinking and all that kind of stuff so basically it's 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 a a desert 1600s france of absolutism you know what i mean and uh rentier kind of offices and a whole bunch of intrigue apparently and and as much as it gets the reputation of of uh you know uh I guess extremist uh, Wahhabist kind of ideology and being the origin of Islam, there's also extreme wealth. And uh, it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition, you know what I mean? Especially for such a, uh, you know, Spartan type religion. Well, the Wahhabis are an interesting example. And I, I don't have an authoritative take on their origins and their their actual role in this society. I just have a few guesses based on an outsider's perspective. So just full disclaimer, but, and by the way, I, I remember actually during the nine 11 era that that term was used a lot to describe what was problematic with how the Saudis operate and effectively it was, it, the way it was presented to me. And I think just generally the public and at large <clears throat> 
perhaps that was propaganda. I don't know, but it was the way it was presented was the Wahhabis are this very fanatical religious sect in Saudi Arabia that has this kind of tentative relationship with the ruling family, which is frankly much more secular and many would say degenerate in the way they sort of spend their money and, and probably have concubines set up all over the place. But it's, um, it was basically like kind of like a, a placation move by the, the ruling family to the religious elements in society, uh, to fund these people to try to keep a lid on any revolts. That was my read on it. And my only sort of take on it now is the, the origins of that relationship, at least in the modern terms or between the, the, the house of Saud and the Wahhabis is that a lot of that came about because there was actually a, a Shia uh, threat to the, the ruling family in that they were the minority and they were not in their, their view being respected as a group of the, the population that deserved a certain level of respect. And they thought they were being unfairly treated by the, the Sunnis and there were there was a fair number of revolts and, and riots and uprisings against the the Sunni establishment. And a lot of the claims were that the the Sauds were irreligious, they were too secular, they were being um corrupt, they they were not following the teachings of Islam and I think it was sort of like a political maneuver on, on the part of the, the Sauds to back up these other religious people who are Sunni to keep down the Shias. That may not be the only reason, but I think that was the only thing that I, I thought was novel in my understanding of how this stuff works that I learned from reading uh, one of these books. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny cause it's like you, you mentioned that and it's uh, another thing that people are kind of like mentioning now, for instance, is for the longest time, and it's a little bit less so, a little bit more thawed now. But obviously, the the, the Muslim world has very uh, tentative relations with the state of Israel, obviously. And um, the the interesting thing is that it's commonly understood um, that you know uh, that the the Saudi royal family is in regular communication you know, and on friendly terms with, uh, you know, intelligence agencies and Mossad and Israel, and they coordinate, especially when it comes to like, uh, you know, running guns and so on and so forth. Um, there's a lot of integration there, but ostensibly they have to present this austere, religious, uncompromising kind of ideology. And it, it's interesting how it is that these two things kind of coexist, you know, because I mean, even, for instance, the most famous Saudi to have, or at least the most uh, famous Saudi citizen to have left in our recent times is Osama bin Laden, uh, the son of a billionaire construction, you know, oligarch, um, and kind of experienced that same situation where he was kind of uh, stuck in a world of, you know, false pretenses. And it's kind of, it, it really is this kind of kingdom, which is, you know, living in one world, but also professing and, and exporting it another, you know? Well, 
this is my cynical take on a lot of this stuff. It reminds me because it's a, it's an absolute monarchy and it's, it's such an old concept that the economist has to like try to castigate it, of course, but th- th- it was funny because I, I read uh, that the economist ranked uh, in terms of their freedom index or whatever, uh, the, the Sauds as being 150th out of 167 countries and, you know, being number one would be you're, you're the most democratic or something. But they're they're very different uh, compared to what Francis Fukuyama obviously would be in support of, and it's an older concept in my take in that the the religious theocratic element is very much reminiscent to me of how, and again this is this is not like I'm not trying to make this into like shoehorn something into the Western mold. It's just I'm more familiar with the Western <laughs> history, and so I, I it reminds me of how the divine right of kings concept was used in European monarchies where the, the kings and queens and the ruling families would use the church as a legitimizing and an enforcement arm of their political power. Again, that's a very cynical take and some people who might have more religious feelings or, uh, even just monastic, uh, sympathies might disagree, but in terms of the Machiavellian approach, I could easily see how this alliance with the religious arm fits the the family. And and in return, the religious people who effectively are just intellectuals in in many ways get funding because they don't work. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they, they don't do anything materially. So they, they have to have the material element provided by somebody else. And, they so I have a statistic. It's like twenty five percent of college degrees in Saudi Arabia are based on theology, which is which is huge uh, compared to any society I know of, uh, at least outside of the Middle East. And the the alliance maybe in to, the West, yeah, uh, yeah, maybe ahead. in the West it's a gender studies uh, rate, you know. Well, that's the new religion, right? But I mean. <laughs> arguably yeah, arguably both are, are not going to pay the bills right so somebody else has got to pay it and uh it, it, what what does the Saud family get out of this i mean if they're funding 25 percent of these degrees to things that are not going to generate any revenue it's like well they probably subdue the population they keep certain people in line they punish people i mean they're 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 notorious for having extremely harsh punishments for for crimes uh like theft cut cut your hand off and we, we would probably both lance and i have some sympathy for punishing people for committing crime but um they're they're tough and i think a lot of that stuff is carried out by these religious uh people and so <clears throat> it's interesting it's interesting well, how they how you know they adam it, it, i have i just had a flashback to uh wild west youtube back before they were censoring the hell out of it Remember, I just remember watching like an execution video in like an official Saudi Arabian court execution video with this almost 
Aladdin Disney tier like sword. It's incredible. A huge scimitar. This guy got his like head locked off. It was insane. But you know, yeah, like, I, I've probably really seen something like that too. Yeah, and they're like in a, in a street, and these guys wearing these black robes, like looking straight out of Indiana Jones or something. They've got these giant swords. Sincerely, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's draconian. It's it was so interesting because like in the background you can see like a brand new Rolls Royce. So actually, I you know I had some uh, experience, uh, you know, with Saudis, especially in college, and you know they they go there. To, you know, for uh, petrol engineering, you know, uh-huh. and uh, of course, and, you know, the interesting thing about the kingdom is that, of course, it's so sparsely populated. And the way that the king in very Byzantine fashion keeps his people in line is by, you know, extreme punishment, but also extreme rewards. That's right. Your average, your average, quote unquote, poor citizen of the Saudi Arabian, you know, monarchy is like heavily subsidized mm-hmm. and so you know when you say that 25 percent or so of the population that's getting a college degree is doing so in, in theology it's fundamentally a, 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 an outgrowth of this kind of obscene wealth and uh combined with this kind of draconian slash byzantine uh approach to keeping a population in line and it's fundamentally why uh, the Saudi kingdom is so stable, the carrot and stick kind of, uh, uh, com- you know, uh, amalgamation is actually working really well for it. And it's one of the most stable countries in the Middle East. And so, I mean, I remember reading, of course, like the top five most, um, how do you say, uh, most prosperous countries in the world are, are you know, majority authoritarian slash monarchists right and it's kind of interesting because i think in the west we're taught from a young age that republicanism and the equality of you know man and all these kind of precepts give rise to wealth well let let me ask you though of that top five quote-unquote prosperous and by the way that's sort of a vague term that i think is somewhat subjective but uh, unless you're going to be just objective about like what is the number but which is probably based on you know some the, the prosperous term is based on some numbers, but how many of those five are natural resource economies where effectively they have a a competitive advantage because they they just they happen to be sitting on the right geography that nobody else can compete with because they don't have that geography. Like you've got Russia, you've got Saudi Arabia. I used to have um, what the hell is that country um, in? It's close to Indonesia. In the eighties, he was big. I forget his name, but he, he the Sultan of Brunei. Thank, uh, sorry, uh, that, wow. that that was the guy Brunei. Um, you've got uh, obviously a lot of other petro states, but most of it's oil. Okay, but how many of those countries are that are authoritarian are also natural resource based? Of course, and, and you're absolutely right. With the exception of the PRC, which is the People's Republic of China, mm-hmm. uh, you know there there really wasn't anyone else that right. had like a developed economic base. Yeah, and if I can, I mean, if I can expand on what why I'm asking you that, the the sort of more Francis Fukuyama, you could say, approach. It's not really his. It's just sort of like the the more free market approach is absent a sort of godsend of of just riches that are sitting under your feet which let's be honest doesn't take a lot of sophistication to uh figure out how to profit from um 
authoritarian regimes historically have not done the best at innovating. Now, however, they're good at catching up. You don't have to look any further than East Asia. Every single prosperous country in East Asia followed a industrialization development model that was led first and pioneered by Japan, but they mm-hmm. effectively were taking technologies from other places and then with extreme amount of discipline, implementing them into their own societies and growing at a, at a rapid rate based on one, they're intelligent Two, they had relatively low cost labor because they were just coming from agricultural societies. And then three, they had a very homogenous society that worked really well together in mass production settings that worked, Mm. that formula worked, but Japanese, Korean and Chinese companies with maybe some exceptions in Japan in some ways have never really come up with anything on their own. Um, and that's, I know that's a, I know that's a huge generalization and obviously they're, they're, they're capable of creating things, but fundamental breakthroughs are, I have no choice to bring up one very salient point though. However, I think, uh, you know, it's important to, to note that I think this, 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 this line of this thesis is probably not correct. And the reason why I say this is because the majority of technological innovations, specifically in the 20th and 19th century originated from the Prussian sphere. Which is a heavily autocratic society. A lot of them, yeah. Heavily, it, well, I mean, like you know, the the you know German Confederation and so on and so forth. Very autocratic, and yet it was that you know civilization which brought. I mean, heck, you got the Soviet Union and the United States to the moon. It you know, even to today, like you know, there are so much uh, innovation that came from. A polity that is autocratic, and so I kind of find it. Well, okay, now that that's that, that, no, that's fair to say that the 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 the, conf, the 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 mixing of the term autocratic and free market economics as like not going together is not necessarily accurate. I think a lot of people associate free markets with democracies, but I think you can have a dynamic, competitive economic realm in your society without a democratic mixture in there. And I think Germany and China today do have, or historically Prussia, I should say, and China today have obviously much more authoritarian regimes compared to democracies. Um, But they still have an extremely dynamic business and economic sphere where people are competing there's uh, research and development based on, yes, there's state funding of science and stuff like that, but there's also a profit motive as well. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to put that out there. I, I, and I, the, the German development model is very interesting, by the way. And, you know, people like uh, List and stuff like that who are kind of protectionists as opposed to free marketers are, are interesting. Mm-hmm. But I think that it, it, still, it still requires a a... a element of competition in the economy that is not centrally planned completely. I I don't think Germany ever had that. I I think they might've had maybe a corporatist or cozy relationship, but correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just, I'm just trying to clarify kind of what I'm, I'm seeing here. Well, I'm, I'm no like, um, 
expert at Prussian socialism. I, I know that's like a huge, um, I can already feel the, the, the course, the consecration, in the background here of people commenting about how I'm not exactly accurate. It's, it's a heated subject, but I guess my, my, my main focus and the reason why I brought up this, the uh, objection is because of the fact that it's a common truism to, to, to make this kind of uh, conflation of, uh, mm -hmm. of democracy with free markets. And uh, you know, the vice uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting because of the fact that like these things don't necessarily just because they correlate doesn't mean they obviously have a causal relationship right and mm -hmm. uh fundamentally um i mean we talk about the dynamism of an economy and innovation and innovation and economic uh you know power is related to of course a, a certain flexibility and openness and uh you know freedom of information and you know per more perfect information so on and so mm -hmm. forth but i don't think that's always the case and uh obviously like you know you're absolutely right like uh, the outside of germany i can't really think of a nation state or like an uh, an autocratic regime which is known for its uh, technological innovation I mean, the Soviet Union, which had a dirigible economy, obviously mar heavily Marxist and uh, socialized and, you know, a, a totalitarian state, uh, only was marked with a couple of innovations, which kind of, uh, I guess, edged out the United States, which was uh, had to do a lot with propulsion technology. Right, right. But that's pretty much it. Right. That's all it, I can really Yeah, pe about. people have to stretch to come up with inventions that the Soviets pioneered i mean like legitimately like yes they had some firsts like rocketry is an interesting example because the uh again the bent the, the advantage quote unquote of having an authoritarian regime is you can you can do to your citizens whatever you want and so one of the things that they were doing was they would build these rockets at such a massive scale for whatever cost it took i mean you know, you're, you're forced, you're forcing your citizens to work on whatever project you direct them towards. So if you want to spend your entire e economy's wealth on rockets, you can do that if you want. Is that wise? Probably not. But nonetheless, they, they dumped a lot of their GDP. Some estimates said during the, uh, the peak of like the Reagan, uh, military buildup, the Soviets in an attempt to keep up in, in an attempt, they didn't do it, but in an attempt to keep up, they ended up dumping half their economy into the military which compared to the US at the time it was probably 10% at, at most but the um the Soviets in the 60s were making in the 50s were making some pretty impressive strides for sure in aerospace and a lot of that in rocketry in particular had to do with the th the fact that they were they were blowing up rockets left and right with no regard to human life uh, they just didn't care. <laughs> it was like, you know, you're just gonna you're just gonna go out there and test this man, uh, Ivan. And uh, if it blows up, sorry. But uh, so they they had some advantages there, and that they they didn't have uh, human rights inspectors, uh, so to speak, uh, getting in their way. Now, the U.S. Uh, military and NASA and whatnot obviously didn't have a, a perfect track record either, and it was extremely dangerous in the early days of aerospace um even in in um the aeronautics or the uh, the the flying part as opposed to just the the rocket part where you don't have any air to like support a wing but it was um it, it was kind of interesting how they developed that program because it, it was just it was just brute force a lot of that stuff because it's so dangerous you know in a, in a country where 
people are quote unquote free, you can't force somebody to like join that program. So there was a certain disadvantage inherently in not having the ability to sacrifice people's lives in the West like they did in the Soviet Union. I think that might be have something to do with their progress. Now, nonetheless, the, the credit where credit's due. The, the, the Soviets were extremely big on science and mathematics, and they did have a huge uh, technical edge in that sense. And I think that helped them for sure. Uh, I think there were some Nobel Prizes also awarded to the Soviets for chemistry and, and things like that. Um, but in terms of just like practical inventions, like there just hasn't been that much, um, sad to say, but just, just, just the fact, but we probably should just be talking about Saudi Arabia a little bit more at some point, but (laughs) (laughs) no, of course, of course. And, and I guess remember that the Soviet union based a lot of its early ballistic missile technology from, you know, looted IP from the Nazis after the fall. So it's, you know, it's important to give that context, but I mean, getting back to the Saudis and, and the future, our future, right? So like you and I, we talk about it because of its salience as far as like our personal lives. I mean, when you go and uh, you go to fill up your, your tank, you know, at the gas station or you hear about a new initiative about trying to uh, subsidize fusion technology to, you know, kind of make it first of all happen. And then second of all, be a uh, kind of automotive form of transportation energy and so you know the saudis sit on roughly 80 percent of the world's petrol i think uh, i think that's i think that's i think that's that's probably a little bit too high uh or or quite a bit too high my 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 read is uh first of all it depends on how you slice it but my my latest numbers are, are basically showing that they have a lot of um a lot of petroleum, which includes, I think, natural gas, but it's in terms of oil reserves, they only have about 16% of the world's reserves. And I think they're only second after uh, Venezuela, if, if I'm not mistaken. Now, what you might be looking at is realizable reserves or something like that that has to do with the fact that a lot of the stuff in certain places like Venezuela or even Canada are very difficult or expensive to extract and process into anything usable. Uh, cause not all petroleum products are the same. I mean, arguably they're all different. Cause if you look at the molecules of, uh, petroleum, they're these extremely complex hydrocarbon chains that are effectively cracked in these distillation tanks that, cause it, it's just, it's just a bunch of dead, dead matter that, has taken millions of years arguably to, to be formed. And it's just a compilation of a lot of muck over the, over the centuries and and eons that gets mixed up. And in order to get the stuff that you want, that's going to be working in a automobile or a truck or an airplane, you have to refine it. And that takes, that takes time. That takes money. Uh, it takes a lot of energy and some of this stuff is is cleaner. Uh, it has lower sulfur content, for example. It might have less uh, basically like heavy stuff like particulates and things like that that are not usable. Uh, you, you, you have a lot of variants of petroleum. And so it could be what you're looking at is certain types of petroleum that they have, which is true. They do have extremely low cost uh, to extract oil. 
uh, it could be more marketable uh, in, in a in a certain calculus. I I, I don't think oh, it's cool. that high though. I mean, I, Iraq has a lot, Iran has a lot, Russia has a lot, uh, and let's just you know think about it intuitively. This Arabian Peninsula, where Saudi Arabia is, which is the majority of the peninsula, is a very small percentage of the world's surface, and it is an ancient seabed for everything I know. And so it makes sense that they have a lot of oil, but other places also have similar properties. And in terms of the land area, it's got to be less than 1% of the world. So it'd be kind of unlikely that, to expect for them to have that much. But it, it's it gets well, into an interesting point where like, how do you do the accounting of all this stuff? It's very tricky. So like a lot of countries will like state that we have proven reserves and then we have estimated reserves and then as time goes on that number changes so of course and, and the number, number you're looking at might have been an older number by the way it could be a forecast could be a different accounting system a lot of this stuff we just don't really have 100 percent knowledge of we have estimates but this stuff it's right. hard because this stuff is underground you can't see it it's not like uh you know, sitting on a shelf. I mean, it, it's literally under rocks and, and dirt and sand. And so you're, you're just, you're estimating. No, absolutely. And I'm, I'm mentioning the 1991 figures, which is part of the reason why, like, oh, I'm that, that's, about the that's, that's outdated. Yeah. That's, that's, it yeah. that doesn't even have the shale oils and all the stuff they've been doing in North America. So yeah, that's not going to be, of course. that's not going to be up to date, but, but it's interesting that you, 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 you make that sort of uh, accidental point is that when you're looking at this stuff, it's, it's important to contextualize it and like, what are you actually doing here? This is what makes oil uh, and petroleum engineering very difficult and, and interesting is that it's, it's a tricky science. Indubitably. And I, I think that, you know, we're talking about autocratic systems and we're talking about governances trying to diversify their economies. I mean, Russia's I guess not notorious, but famously, um, you know, known for this, for trying to have an initiative that's outside of their natural gas and oil economy, which is the majority of it, right? So like 70 is like 60% of their entire economy or something like something ridiculous is based on, you know, uh, energy markets and so on, um, which is coincidentally how we undermine the Soviet Union's economy during the Cold War. But I think the Saudis, especially, they're trying to diversify their economy, and it's one of the reasons why they send so many of their uh, young men to uh, the United States and the West, is to kind of basically innovate and be the source of a new market, which is outside of the petrol you know, world, because whether people like it or not, petrol is on the way out. And of course, it's ubiquitous and all that kind of stuff, but it's a significant strategic uh, liability, right? And, and it's a liability that the West specifically does not want to be uh, held under, you know, the thumb of, right? And of course, the United States has like uh, natural reserves and reserves and, and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think a lot of our intervention into the Middle East, of course, was predicated on, uh, you know, bolstering the petrodollar. And it's kind of interesting. Have you been tracking on the uh, new BRICS uh, trading in the uh, UN? Yes. Yeah, can you tell us about that? Because I actually was interested to know. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not super in the weeds on the details of how that was structured, but the 
Cliff's Notes version is the petrodollar concept, which was set up under um, well, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger's uh, regime with Saudi Arabia, was a system that was effectively a quid pro quo or trade between the United States and Saudi Arabia, and that the Saudis, given at the time especially, were sitting on the the largest known amount of crude oil in the world, they were a linchpin in terms of setting the, um, the oil markets direction. They had been part of the, uh, the oil embargoes and, and stuff like that. And the protests against the U S support of Israel, um, during the conflicts in the seventies. And in order to placate the Saudis, the, the Americans told them basically, uh, or offered to them in exchange for military support and access to American weaponry and, uh, military, uh, protection from the U S military, uh, directly. In addition to selling arms to the Saudi military, the Saudis would do a couple things. One, they would, and we did a show on this by the way, way back. So if anybody wants to hear Ryan Landry and my former co-host Alex Nicholson talk about this at, at length, uh, please uh, check that out. But, uh, it was a good show, but, uh, many others have obviously done work on this, so it's nothing we innovated, but the concept was the Saudis would do two things in exchange for the military support. They would only sell their oil in us dollars. And then two, anything that they sold and then received us dollars in exchange for would then be deposited effectively in us financial institutions. And the last one is a little more complicated into like what effect that has. But the first one I think is easier to understand. It, it makes the dollar helpful or not helpful. It, it makes it more desirable in the financial world in that at the time you have to remember the Vietnam war was sort of still winding its way through the American military and, and American society and, and wreaking havoc, frankly, on the budget of the federal government, because we were not, we were, we were spending more than we were taking in in terms of taxes. And so at the time, uh, prior to Nixon's, uh, taking the, uh, the, the fixed exchange rate and, and promise to back every U S dollar with gold, um, and him, him ending that effectively, uh, the U S had to kind of keep a, a more balanced budget in order to honor that obligation to, uh, have enough gold to pay for any, any calls on, on the dollars. And the French actually tried to do that. And one of the reasons, uh, Nixon abandoned the, uh, the gold standard was that the, uh, the potential threats from, uh, member Silicon Valley bank, it was sort of the same thing. It's like if a depositor has, uh, assets in the U S federal reserve system in dollars, they had the right to demand gold at any time. And if you do it all at once, you can actually cause problems in terms of the U S may not have that gold for you. Um, and so, he took it off the, the standard and to, to kind of support then the dollar from further depreciating because it was, they were printing more money than they had and it was causing inflation. They 
came up with this petrodollar concept where the Saudis would then create a new reason to want dollars. And so that has been in effect for 50 plus years or around 50 years, I, I should say. And it was very notable that the current king of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman or crown prince or whatever he's called. I don't know the difference, but MBS is the guy. He, uh, he led a, uh, arrangement deal, whatnot with, or an understanding with the Chinese in particular and some other countries like, I guess the, the BRICS, the, let's just define what that means. It's the Brazil, Russia, India, China, and, at some point somebody threw South Africa on there to like, but you can, you can forget that one. I think in practical terms, uh, just brick plural, as opposed to South Africa, they, they're interested in this too, because they're, they're, they're important countries, all of them. And they also don't necessarily want us uh, dominating everything. And they've long had a, a desire to have an alternative to this dollar and the Chinese in particular are probably the, the most powerful player in that group. And it makes sense that they would want to be able to use their own currency as opposed to somebody else's currency in transacting in a commodity that they effectively don't have much of and depend on heavily, uh, given how uh, industrialized that that society is. You need a lot of energy to run an industrial society. So they've, um, they've been wanting to do that for a long time. And it's very interesting that MBS did it when he did it. And a lot of people think it has something to do with the fact that, uh, Trump is out of there. Uh, if, if anybody remembers, he, he made this kind of goofy visit after he got into office where he was standing in this like very bizarre looking room with his hand on this like glowing orb. And that was in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and, uh, I remember that. Yeah, it was really strange. And uh, and so Trump was uh, at least um, not anti-Saudi Arabia in that he wanted to uh, keep the alliance going. Because, I mean, he's, he's like, oh, you know, it's about the oil. The oil's very important, you know, blah, blah, blah. So he's a little older school, but he, he appreciated the importance of Saudi Arabia, at least from that point of view. Mm. Biden gets in there and he's got all these SJWs, you know, in his cabinet. And I don't even know if Biden really understands what he's saying, but there's at least an administrative at an administrative level, a desire to kind of criticize countries like Saudi Arabia and MBS in particular because of things like human rights. And there have been uh, a lot of controversial things that have happened since Mohammed bin Sal Salman took over, uh, in that he, um, he got this Khashoggi guy arguably killed cause he was writing things that were critical of, um, Saudi Arabia in general, and probably MBS in particular. Uh, he had this, uh, a couple of times he, but he, in particular, there was this Ritz Carlton coup where he, he locked up all of the, the wealthy, uh, arguably rival people in, Saudi Arabia in, in a hotel for a couple of weeks and subjected them to a lot of, um, a lot of people suspect torture in order to get them to comply to his, uh, his political, political agenda. 
And then he apparently, I didn't, I didn't know about this until I read some article in Al Jazeera. He got the prime minister of Lebanon to come to Saudi Arabia on probably some ruse, like to get him, you know, into the clutches of the Saudi Arabian security forces. And they, they basically, they took his cell phone away and I'm sure they did more than that, but they got him to abdicate in absentia from Lebanon. I mean, it's just unheard of. Like, how do you, how do you do that? Like, I mean, this is crazy. Like you get some foreign government person to come to your country and then you basically, you, you bully him into stepping down from his own country. (laughs) That was, that's a pretty, that's a pretty baller move. And so anyway, all this stuff is going on. And so Biden is like, ah, this guy's a jerk. And he, he went to Saudi Arabia on like one of his first uh, presidential trips and he wouldn't shake the man's hand. And for such a like traditional society and, and especially in a, in a kingdom where this guy's used to having people kiss his ass. Um, I think he was offended by that. And I, I, I know it's sort of like silly to like say, well, that's what did it. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was, that was a, at least the straw no. that broke this particular camel's back that, that pushed this uh, petrol you want thing. So the Middle East is one of those few places left in the world where, you know, so that's the funny thing is we were talking about Saudi Arabia, but I think it's wrong to just note it as its own self-contained unit. It forms part of a larger civilizational sphere, right? And and like, you know, this is very reminiscent of something like, you know, uh, ancient Greece and like, you know, the Peloponnesian War. A lot of the the kind of conflicts that arose had to do with a lot of personal vendettas and uh, kind of like dramas that happened that people, I mean, especially in the West, I feel like we'd be so, I guess, mature or, you know, ridicule such an idea that people would go to war over a matter of honor or, you know, being upset or something. But these are uh, countries with men who own their country, like, you know, the kingdom of Jordan and so on. And so very medieval in that, that kind of function It's it's, it's very interesting and it makes for great drama, you know? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's certainly, uh, more cinematic than the, the pablum that we get out of, uh, Anthony Blinken or whatever his name is. And, uh, going to the Chinese and like, sort of like, okay, okay. You know, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And just, just being really weak. Um, it, it is kind of, I mean, look, I don't want to live in Saudi Arabia. I'll just be honest with you, but it's kind of refreshing just from an entertainment point of view to see like a man again. And again, I I don't necessarily think it's constructive on a societal level necessarily, but I, I, you know, you could fantasize about being a guy like this and being, you know, the the man in charge, perhaps at the expense of everybody else in the the country. There's 33 million other Saudis who probably don't feel this way, but He's enjoying himself for sure. <laughs> He's the king, literally. You know, it, it's interesting. I, I think I, I really kind of like the Arab people as far as they're just have a very warlike ethos. They're very warrior kind of culture and they have very beautiful kind of poetry. It reminds me a lot of like Latin culture in a way. And I'm sure there's a lot of diffusion between the two. But, you know, I, I, like having known Arabs, I, I wouldn't be surprised that that's something that they would kind of rise to the occasion. Too bad they kind of really suck at war. You know, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I was reading. There's, there's, book, there's many, many books on this subject, so maybe, maybe we can defer uh, to what they think. 
but uh no sincerely it's an academic point of view but yeah. for instance there's cross training that happens all the time with saudi units and they're absolutely completely incompetent they do a maximum of 30 minutes of work all day and then they spend the rest of it smoking cigarettes and so like you know it's interesting that for a people they, they that sound they sound die, lazy <laughs> yeah they're incredibly lazy except when it comes to war you know what i mean then they they're willing to just absolutely have the bloodiest exchanges it's, it's interesting and, and i mean i think iraq you know here's the deal is that uh, iraq and syria are both to a certain degree of fa- you know failed states right um and the most interesting aspect of that is that they're the arena for different regional forces as well as of course you know global forces like the chinese uh you know the russians and the americans but for instance saudis who are you know in basra and trying to like assassinate for instance like uh, prominent Shi- uh, shiite clerics you know what i mean or or vice versa and the irgc is is you know gunning down these guys out in like you know freaking baghdad it's it's in, it's insane that these kind of things happen and i think that as we go into the future with increased uh, global instability. And I'm sure that with uh, in- increased involvement of the United States against uh, the PRC Russian bloc, you know, uh, it would be interesting to see how it is that the United States is going to uh, deal with the kingdom as far as future hostilities against Iran. Because I think uh, that's one of the things, one of the reasons why Iran is like developing a nuclear power program is because as soon as you have nuclear weapons, you're not going to get messed with. I mean, Think of North Korea, for instance, which is a really interesting case. Um, the sole reason why we, you know, they haven't been toppled is is because of this almost like guarantor type self security situation where they have like these nuclear weapons. Well, uh, and, that's um, that's a theory. Uh, I have a I have an alternative take, but but please continue. Uh, it's an interesting point, though. And, and it's part of the reason why we actually have uh, ICBM installations in Saudi Arabia and and the Saudi what? Arabian. I didn't like, know that. Yeah, wait, wait, wait! Yeah, but are, but are they started. nuclear? Are they nuclear armed? Uh, before they were just ballistic missiles. I'm sure that they're they're capable of mounting a nuclear warhead. But before they're just I, I don't know, precision I don't missiles. think they have nuclear warheads. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but that that's that would be a big. Uh, provocation if we put nukes not that it would matter you just launch them from a submarine but it's like Iran would probably be pissed off about that of course I mean of course I mean and and that's the uh, the interesting thing is that like the the Saudis really are Byzantine about playing one side over after you know off the other playing the Chinese off the Americans and so on and so forth and I feel like they're one of the stalt war kingdoms able to resist the Chinese uh, Belt and Road Initiative and the the String of Pearls and so on and still make it work in their favor but uh, what were you going to say? Oh, well, you, you said that the only reason we haven't toppled North Korea is because they have nuclear weapons. I mean, I think that's a factor for sure. Uh, South Korea would probably appreciate not triggering that that launch code. But the, um, the, the ar- other argument that North Korea is allowed, quote unquote, to exist is actually it's, it's a very useful pawn in a larger geostrategic conflict between the West and well, ostensibly the communist world, but, you know, Russia and China, basically, because it it justifies the presence of the U.S. military in South Korea, obviously, but also in places like Japan. Um, 
you could argue China plays that role a little bit more now too, but the, the period of cooling off with uh, tensions with China since uh, the Kissinger-Nixon era sort of put them on the, on the down, on the down burner for a while. And I think the, uh, the North Koreans were very useful in justifying the U S military's presence there. Yeah. You know, yeah, you're absolutely right. And like, you know, there, and, and vice versa, kind of by the way. And, and I think the Chinese also like them having them there too, because then they can sort of use the rhetoric of like, well, the American imperialists are in South Korea, you know, we can't let North Korea fall. So support the great people's Republic, you know, army, whatever. I, I think, um, I think it's useful for both sides. Um, it's, just, it's interesting because the, the Korean war is also used as a propaganda, um, kind of conflict, Right. Because for, for the yeah. PRC, for the Chinese. Absolutely. Right? And, and and it's a huge moment in their their history because, I mean, the Chinese also really suck at war, which is why I'm not really so sanguine <laughs> about their threat. I, like, I don't know what it is, but like they got their shit pushed in against the Vietnamese in the 80s and the 90s and the early 90s. Yeah, the Vietnamese and, are pretty uh, good, aren't they? <laughs> they're, act- they're actually really, really competent and really good. I mean, it, it happens when you, you've been fighting off one Western power after another for roughly like oh, and, 50 and, years. And the Chinese, oh, more than that, I think. Yeah, they were fighting off. Uh, well, I, yeah, I don't know. French colonialism, then the Americans. But they've been fighting off China, too, for a long time. Of course, I, I strongly dislike communists, but I have a lot of respect, especially reading Vietnam War mem- memoirs about you know conflicts and con- you know the individual Vietnamese soldier, you know just just how much they were able to suffer, you know going through stuff and and food yeah. deprivation, and, you know all this kind of crazy oh, stuff. Oh, they're tough. Yeah. But, yeah, we're getting off course here, but you know the interesting thing is that uh, we don't really talk about the Hermit Kingdom. But the interesting part is the the most effective advisors, especially for the Tiger forces in Syria, mm-hmm. are actually North Korean military advisors that are attached to a Tiger Force uh, armored division. Huh. And like a lot of people don't know this, but uh, but the North Koreans have three main exports. One is meth, right? Uh, two, as of right now, is artillery shells to Russia okay. that's laundered by you know, the Chinese. And three is military, uh, you know, military advisors, especially for like, you know, Nigeria and Af- huh. Africa and so on. I'll, yeah, I'll, pu- a I'll put a, I'll put a fourth on there if you don't mind. I, I believe Go they're, I think, I believe they're big uh, U.S. dollar counterfeiters as well. You know, I, I was thinking of that about that myself. I mean, it's incredibly difficult to counterfeit, uh, you know, modern U.S. currency. Yeah, I, dep- I just depends, don't see depends, how it we- depends on who's taking the dollar. I mean, if you're if you're buying stuff in the Central African Republic or whatever, I mean, I don't think they're going to scrutinize it too hard. But I could be wrong. <laughs> no, of course. And, and so, I mean, just getting back to the kingdom, of course, and, and like it, the most interesting thing about Saudi Arabia and the trucial states is that, of course, they have their main military conventional arm, but the most common entire formations, regiments of Colombians or, or you know, uh, Americans, you know, there's like retired generals from the United States that are sent to basically govern the uh, centralized command of, of the Saudi military command. It's actually mm. a very interesting Durangian Guards flavor going on. And I actually wanted to bring up Ironically enough, this interesting BuzzFeed article about kind of like the shenanigans. Uh, did, didn't they go broke? Up. 
I thought BuzzFeed was shutting down. Yeah, yeah, they they went broke, and in their entire time of existence, they had one good article, and it was about. What so I'm this is like right from now. the archive, basically. Oh yeah, I have it saved. It was so good. It was, it was so impressive. But it's the story of this Israeli national that had gone to the French Foreign Legion and completed his contract and went back. Wow. And it talks about his his experience mounting a private military company hmm. and uh, being basically a hitman for the UAE in Yemen, which is the locus for a proxy war between the Trucial States and Saudi Arabia. You know the Houthi and 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 so on. Uh, well, the, know, the, the what aligned. states? The tertial states. Who's the that? Trucial states. Uh, Trucial. So Qatar, uh, Kuwait, uh, okay. you know uh, Dubai, so on and so forth. Okay. All all these states are are formed of like previous British mandate, but um you know they had these proxy proxy wars and uh, talks about him like doing uh like basically contract jobs of whacking you know major paramilitary leaders and militia members and stuff like that and his experience is very kind of uh mad mike horde type vibes of like a gunslinging uh you know kind of uh intrigue and stuff like that only in the end to get caught by the americans and having to explain to them that they're actually uae citizens because luckily enough this guy was smart to have uh, been made part of the contract to actually have be citizens and uniformed body members of the uae and not just simple mercenaries hmm. so it, it, there's a lot of drama and there's frankly so much stuff i would be surprised if there's some kind of action book that comes out of inspired from the middle east it's really interesting i think there have been a lot of movies already made about it i'm i'm I, i'd be interested in seeing something like that I, I think the khashoggi one will probably get made into something if it hasn't already um, not that I would necessarily <laughs> subscribe to the narrative presented in that because it's the usual suspects usually making that stuff, but, um, definitely of interesting, course. definitely interesting. Yeah. And a lot of Americans have, have actually made their bones, so to speak in Saudi Arabia it, back in the, um, sixties, especially in the seventies, the, the government, uh, of Saudi Arabia, the kingdom which which is a you know a government i mean it's it's got a a huge bureaucracy that it's not just theological it has it has bureaus and administrative administrative functions in charge of effectively the i'll use that term again the commanding heights of the the society in terms of uh, electricity education healthcare all that stuff it, it's it's all kind of government uh government run or at least administered and Americans were were sought after uh, for the technical talent in, in particular uh, for civil engineering, for chemical engineering, petroleum engineering, for pretty obvious reasons. I, I would I would think, but I've I've actually met a couple of guys that worked over there during that time, and it was um, it was they they were treated pretty well uh, because they wanted to build out a lot of the the infrastructure that they have today. It's very indeed, interesting, indeed. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's just, I think as time goes on and oil, I'm, I'm sure this is going to be like two centuries into the future, but well, yeah, I, I want to, I, mean, I want to actually talk about the future of oil at, at, uh, at a point in the show, but go ahead. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting to see it. Like if uh, the Saudis are able to adapt and diversify like their technological expertise and so yeah. on right. to kind of cope with that. I, I mean, 
you know, petrol, we talk about petrol, especially you and I were, were raised in the era of, you know, oh, we went there, we invaded for the oil, you know what I mean? And like, yeah. of course, this forms the majority of the dialectic and the history behind it. But, you know, there are very real ideological forces at play, which often escape the control of the government or kind of other stuff that are actually a lot more organic. And part of the reason why Baathism and, and Arab nationalism died away was because, of course, it was killed. Uh, the, the most important kind of proselytizer of that of that ideology was uh, Saddam Hussein. And, of course, that went away. Um, but in that stead, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood especially has very close ties with, you know, obviously the Saudis and and the increasing uh, presence of Islam and its diffusion to out, out into the world, and of course the rise of ISIS, and and using them as an arm for every intelligence agency in the Middle East. Somehow, I don't know how it is the case that they're able to use them as useful idiots, but it is the case. And um, it seems like whenever one of these strings are plucked, it's always Saudi Arabia at the center of this uh, spider's nest. You know what I mean? Well, what do you mean by at the center? So, of course, we talk about 9-11 and, you know, obviously the pilots and so on, but that, that's a truism. Everyone knows that. But a few people know, for instance, the Al-Haqqani, uh, you know, uh, network, which is in Pakistan, which had a lot to do with uh, sustaining the forces of the Taliban, giving information, or, for instance, doing counterinsurgency um identification in iraq when we we're doing uh, operation during freedom um it, people don't know that the cia was using a lot of contacts from saudi arabia in a in a bid to kind of uh, suss out sympathizers and for instance uh, there there's this uh, great book written by i think of robert fisk and he talks about this situation where a lot of the cia agents who are hired are kind of uh misled by these by these agents and, and are often uh, the Saudis that are the ones misdirecting, for instance, uh, surgical strikes, you know how we like hellfire predator missile uh, certain individuals? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, for, for a period of, I think it was like almost 12 years, uh, one of our closest informants to the CIA was feeding information to the CIA of, yes, Salafist groups, but those that were in the interests of the Saudis being, you know, destroyed. And so, like, it, it's interesting that we were killing our own guys at the behest of specifically Saudi uh, extremists hmm. and their ability to kind of integrate into uh, Western military or like uh, clandestine services and form as a front for, of course, money laundering, the opium trade and a lot of the uh, illicit oil activity that occurs as well. I mean, there's it's kind of interesting. I don't know how they exactly pull it off logistically, but uh, a lot of the economy, the black market economy, functions off of illicit oil trading as well. Hmm. So, so you know, of course, you can you can draw parallels to the IRGC and you know Soleimani. I'm sure you're aware of, um, and also you know Lebanon and and Hezbollah and so on, so on and so forth. Um, but it's always the Saudis that are pulling the major strings. And it's very rare that any cleric, like there's a uh, Turkish cleric that was pulling a lot of strings as well in the clandestine counterinsurgency war during Iraq. Um, he actually lives in, uh, I think in the middle of Pennsylvania right now, like near like state college or something. But, uh, 
the majority of these people that are instigating the Muslim Brotherhood and so on and so forth and were instrumental, for instance, and in, I don't know if you remember uh, when Egypt had that coup uh, with the, uh, the the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, threatening the presidency, upending the, the junta mm-hmm. that preceded it. During, that, during the Arab Spring that, era? Yes. All mm-hmm. of that can be traced to Saudi, Saudi nationals in the employ of specifically of uh, the CIA mm-hmm. not and I think it's not the CIA that was doing it I think uh, there are somehow very very tricky people they're they're able to use you know ostensibly people that are using them and, and, and a lot of judo going on it's kind yeah. of interesting it's a lot of intrigue you know why do you think why do you think uh, Saudi Arabia has that role as to the exclusion I guess of well, other, I mean, other places or countries I think the most obvious, uh, the most self self evident reason is because of it, its centrality religiously, right? It has okay. Mecca and Medina. Historic, it, it it forms itself the yeah. center of the Islamic world. That makes sense. Affords itself, of course, certain advantages. For instance, of connection, you know, of you know, going on, you know, whatever, like the you know their their pilgrimage and meeting people from all over the world, which uh, are not necessarily Arabs. You know, they they they're far like far-reaching so i don't know like really why it is the case that they specifically chose wahhabism because that's an interesting thing that people don't know is that sunni extremism doesn't come in just one flavor which is what we know of as wahhabism it comes in multiple different ones right it comes you know salafist ones it comes in like uh you know specific different schools and so on and so forth but it always seems that it's the wahhabist uh theology or theocracy or whatever it is um, that's used as a raison d'etre to to act in the wider world, and I mean, I, it, it go as far south as Nigeria, and you know, you go to Afghanistan and so on. All of it's connected to the kingdom, and it's just so interesting. I mean, maybe when Trump was looking to that orb, he was actually looking to the connection. We don't, we never know, you know. I don't know. I, I don't even think he knew what he was doing. He probably was just uh, invited to come to come to this thing and. He was being polite. That's how that's how I, I gathered from that. I could be completely he was wrong. Pondering enough, the but... orb. He's pondering the orb. Pondering no, the but orb. yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but it, it's just um, you know, going into the future, I mean you were gonna talk about oil, like w- what are the economic projections of the utility of oil in the market? Well, it depends on whom you ask, obviously, but uh you, you said that um well I'm not going to put words in your mouth because I just don't remember. But w- what did you say about oil? You said something to the effect, though, and just clarify it, please, but that it, it's going away or we all know it's going away. Uh, w- what did you say in that regard? Yeah, I, I think that technologically speaking, it's going to be phased out. And, you know, of course, there's like this whole mobilization for climate change or whatever. I think that's just a proxy to get at more important strategic questions, which has to do mm-hmm. with energy independence. I think that's really the main reason why, because it's a severe security risk, you know what I mean, for the United States. No, I I agree with you on it being a a problem strategically, given that the United States doesn't have a unlimited supply of this stuff. We do have a a fair amount of it, though, that's accessible at a certain cost, and that's always the question. It's like people who say oil is never going to run out, you can always find it, you know, it's like, well... All right, but at what price? And the other thing I'd say is that every single oil oil well we've drilled has been depleted. 
So unless you think that the earth has an infinite surface area, eventually you will mathematically hit a limit. I mean, I, I don't think the argument needs to be any simpler than that, but, uh, I mean, in theory, you know, maybe, maybe the ocean's got a bunch of it, you know, I, I don't know, but again, the cost of it is just going to be insane to get out. And so regardless of how much is left, the trend has been that with the help of technology, we've sort of been able to sort of offset that, but the trend has been, it gets more and more and more expensive and more difficult to pull the stuff out of the ground. Uh, even if we, we don't think there's a realistic limit on how much there is that the pattern is it takes more money and it also takes more energy to extract. So I agree. It's a, it's a, it's a strategic risk to depend on this stuff without having a alternative that has the, 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 the engineering characteristics, basically the, the, the functional characteristics of what petroleum offers, which is incredible for the record. I, I am, I am extremely fond of the benefits of petroleum. First of all, I've said that I think pretty consistently. I think some people think I'm against oil for some reason because they think I, I don't know. I like Elon Musk or something. I just think that the, I agree. The strategic importance of having sustainable alternatives is really paramount. The climate change thing is, it's less clear to me. Now, is it, is it a psyop? I don't think it's necessarily a slam dunk that it is completely made up, but I also think that there's a lot of uh, people involved in it, whether they're aware of it or not, that are probably being used by more powerful forces for other, other means, but whatever, whatever the case may be, um, I think we can all recognize that, that burning stuff has an impact on the environment to what degree you can argue to what cost you can argue, uh, also because there are benefits obviously of this stuff. I mean, like, I think the most obvious point is, I think that people take for granted in a, in a more industrialized, wealthy society is that just, uh, don't turn on the lights. Don't use your car. Don't buy anything, frankly, and just try to live off the land and see how far you get every day. That's basically what life was like before fossil fuels. And for the record, um, the current energy, that is, is used in terms of a, you know, lighting or kinetic motion or heating or something like that, uh, or running electronics, 84% of that comes from fossil fuels today. That's a huge number. Really? 84, according to I'm our world of data, according larger, to Forbes, uh, go ahead. I'm surprised now a larger percentage of that, uh, didn't come from nuclear energy. Well, nu nuclear was a very promising technology that is still extremely promising, but it is not utilized <laughs> unless you've got, unless you have smart people in charge like they do in China, but because they're building 50 reactors right now. And I think we have one in the United States that's been, that's been under the, uh, under the thumb of the nuclear regulatory commission. Uh, and, and it has been stuck in uh, construction for the past 15, 20 years. Uh, 
we have one reactor that's supposed to come online at some point. Uh, but the you know the interesting thing is uh, the Western Europe gets their electricity from Ukraine, which is a major nuclear power plant electricity producer. Well, 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 wait, 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 wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. They, they get some of it, but to, to say that they get their energy, I think implies that they get the most of it. I don't think that's true. I think France is nuclear well, I'm nuclear powered. I'm exaggerating from, from their know, own. It, it, okay. it, it, yeah. it is interesting. It's just interesting that like it's not a, a catalyzed technology because it's not just promising it's a it's a known quantity it's it's known for like what it can do for us and uh, i think a lot of yeah. a lot of it has to do with oil big oil and it has to do with big gas and I, the interest therein yep. you know what I, mean? I think there there's a there's a, a a case to be made for that a lot of the environmental groups actually who are anti-nuclear uh, have been and I, I wish i had more concrete you know cite my sources but um, I think there have I think Michael Schellenberger has written about this in one of his books about some of these groups have received I think Sierra Club might, might have even gotten money from it. Uh, but I, I'm trying to name names here to not just like make this sound like it's not not based on anything. But a lot of these environmental groups have gotten funding from oil and gas concerns to actually explicitly go after nuclear power because it is such a it's such a good technology. And and why do people not like it? I mean, it begs the question. Obviously, people are scared of it. Obviously, you watch The Simpsons. I mean, you don't have to look any further. But we've had we've had accidents for sure. Um, we had a we had a really bad meltdown in Ukraine actually in 1986. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that one. Um, I guess if people aren't, it's called Chernobyl. But the the most recent one was in Japan. And that was uh, 2011, and that was, was a freak act of God that caused that. It wasn't actually due to any negligence on the Japanese's part. You could argue maybe it was a it was a it was an oversight that they didn't build a bigger seawall. But I mean, this thing was like one once in a thousand years size wall of water, so. In terms of planning around things that might happen, but you don't know if they're going to happen, you you could go on, and this is exactly what's happened. People have basically said, "Well," and um, I'm a big fan of uh, this guy named Doomberg. He's uh, basically an energy uh, blogger and podcaster, basically to promote his blog. But he's um, he's pretty funny, and he he basically has said that. The, the reason nuclear has not caught on is every time the nuclear industry comes up with a new solution and a, and a technology to increase safety to a statistical probability of, of not going awry, they call that like the number of nines you have. So what that means is there is a 999 number of nines after that nine, 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 like five, nine, six, nine, seven, nines percent chance of things going well. And there's a point. And so the complement of that in statistics is the, 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 what is the difference between that and a hundred percent? The other part is the chance of something going wrong. So if you have five nines, you have point oh 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 one percent chance of something going wrong, which is really small which is really small. Now, of course it depends on the time scale. Like if it's every year you have five nines, it would happen once every, what is that? 
10,000, 100,000 years, something like that. It's pretty, it's pretty extreme. But what, what he says is that every time they, they come up with a new nine, the, the, the environmentalists, the regulators say, well, we need another nine now. So you have to 10 X, 10 exit in terms of it's, uh, it's safety quote unquote. But the problem is, um, this stuff is usually nonlinear in terms of the cost of of like guaranteeing things. So you can think of it very simply. It's like you have, you have a nuclear power plant. Okay. So what's the first thing we're going to do to make it safe? Well, how about, uh, you know, you put, you put a big lead shield in front of the reactor. Okay. That made sense. Uh, because it has radiation coming out of it. You don't want to stand in front of that, you know, otherwise you're going to grow a third arm or something. So put a lead shield in front of it. That'll block all the neutrons. Okay, cool. Uh, Now, what happens if there's an earthquake? Well, okay, that makes sense. You know, there might be an earthquake. So, well, don't build it there. Build it in a seismically stable place like Germany, for example. Not like Japan, as it turns out. Um, The Germans, given they don't have tsunamis or earthquakes, stupidly decided to close their nuclear power plants after japan which had this tsunami because of an earthquake but anyway so let's not build it there so let's find a place that's seismically stable okay so that's going to cost god knows what because we have to move the whole facility find a place that's not populated secure the land that's going to cost some money that's going to be a little bit more difficult i think than just finding some lead and building a shield around it right okay now next thing we need to do is make it uh, a little bit safer but you see what we're doing. We're going through the low-hanging fruit first. And every time you go to the next level, level, it gets harder because you usually start with the obvious simple stuff. So what's next after making it more seismically stable? Um, well, we need to come up with a better reactor technology. So we're going to spend 10 years and billions of dollars testing and running simulations and hiring really smart nuclear engineers and physicists to come up with the system that will be idiot proof. Okay. That sounds good, but that that's, that's complicated. You have to have really smart people, a lot of time, a lot of testing, a lot of oversight, a lot of redundancies. That's going to get expensive. Okay. We do that. Well, now we have to have something else. So it keeps getting harder and harder and harder. And there's sort of Lucy, this thing like of Lucy with the football with this stuff where the goal is not actually to create anything feasible. It's to like, just delay them. And I think there's a lot of theories that like, yeah, maybe it's oil and gas or something, but there's just this horrible like tendency for the opponents of nuclear to, to ask for one more thing. And then when they get it, they're still not satisfied. So, but those are the reasons why people don't like it. It's like, we've had a couple accidents, the effects of radiation, obviously, if you're standing in front of a nuclear reactor, you're sitting in the reactor, it will cause some uh, mutations in your cells and there were people who got sick who ended up doing the cleanup at chernobyl no question about that but the number of people actually in the chernobyl exclusion zone and the places like that that people have um, had to flee who have developed thyroid cancer which is usually the typical most common type of cancer that is developed from nuclear radiation and radioactive waste and and fallout is suspiciously not any higher than anywhere else, at least on a significant level. It's not much if, if at all, there's a lot of uh, there's a British scientist that I forget her name, but she's 
on this podcast called decoupled it's very good and it's a canadian doctor and he basically is a huge nuclear proponent and he's a, he's a liberal too so he's kind of like frustrated with the left because they don't seem to see the benefits of nuclear power but he had on this uh, british doctor and she was basically going through the statistics of it and how how not dangerous this stuff actually is in, in practice because they we've had 30 they almost 30 years of data on or no almost 40 years excuse me of data on the chernobyl accident and it's in like the at most like the thousands of people that have gotten sick and then thyroid cancer is actually one of the most survivable cancers out there actually so it's not even that lethal um, and it's not to dismiss anybody who has it i mean it's it's not anything anyone would want of course but um, compared, compared to, and I'll, last just point, quickly, well, go ahead, go ahead. Okay. It's just a quick note. I, it, you know, the egregious thing is uh, the way that they conflate it and sell it to the public is that they take pictures. Uh, they say, Oh, the Chernobyl accident. And then they take pictures of the polygon survivors, which was a Soviet like atomic weapons mm. area that they just freaking like annihilated with nuclear weapons. And there's like birth defects and stuff. And they conflate it with nuclear reactors and the outcome of that. So, the, so they're lying. Completely... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a wrong of picture. Of course, they wouldn't call it that, right? But they're certainly misleading the public in okay. a very nefarious way. Okay. You know? I didn't know about that. It's called the Polygon? Yeah. So there's this region in Kazakhstan called uh, their Polygon Survivors, which is this mm. area which is in the shape of a polygon, hence the name. Mm. But like there's some really messed up like child deformities, cancer, continuous cancer cases that come from it. Yeah. All this stuff. But but it came from uh, testing like neutron bombs and stuff. It didn't come from yeah. reactors, you know. Right. Which is which is what we're talking about, right? Because reactors and uh, the weapons delivery system are two different things, especially right. how they like enter the atmosphere and so on. And like anyway, I, I'll let you continue, but it, it, I just wanted to say that because it was so frustrating when I first discovered that. You know, I was like a kid, and I was like, you know, seeing that you get freaked out and suddenly. Oh yeah, you oh, I was that. I was terrified of that stuff too as as a kid, and why wouldn't you be? I mean, you see you see pictures of deformities, and you know, it's a, it's an instinct to to sort of be scared by that, and that's a normal reaction, of course. I mean, nobody wants that. For 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 a record, I'm I'm not. Nobody here is like saying that's good, but you have to compare it to your alternatives. So the, the, the worst one that I think most people would reasonably agree that has caused the most, most death, the most accidents, the most cancer, the most harm to health is coal. It's coal. And you could argue burning leaded gasoline maybe also was a huge problem, which we've solved by basically taking the lead out and putting other um anti-knocking agents into into gasoline and petroleum distillates but the um the effects of the alternatives to nuclear are are quite measurable as being bad also now what people who are anti-nuclear will typically say is well we shouldn't do those either so we should just do solar and and water well they don't even like that one because it hurts fish but um hydro is a fantastic source of clean sustainable power that works for hundreds of years you just build a dam it's awesome but 
there's you know limits to how much you can do I, with that because there's there's only so many valleys you can build these things in but, but go ahead you know what the interesting thing is actually um hydroelectric is up and coming thing because what they're going to do is start using sea currents they're going to place these massive I think that's called turbines t- that's called under- tidal tidal power actually but uh oh. But you know, it's interesting. It's an interesting one. No, 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 no. It's 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 obviously using water. um, But the the concept of a hydroelectric dam is powered by the the sort of geometric expansion of 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 gravity. So you have to have a head pressure that that generates uh, from the the height of the water. It creates this like really huge power at the bottom tidal power is it's it's equivalent to like a run of the river we did a show about the uh development of the the west and the department of interior so these are terms i I learned in studying that but um it's a less powerful version basically of of a hydroelectric dam it doesn't mean that you can't you can't do it or shouldn't do it i mean there's there's talking about that for a long time but it's it's not as um not as efficient basically for the amount of infrastructure you'd have to build to 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 capture that that um that energy now there's probably the 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 benefit of it though is that there's a lot more sites where you could construct it although people still all the all the hollywood malibu elite are probably going to bitch and moan if they build it in front of malibu but um you have to put it in front of a poor person's house right but uh yeah (laughs) we'll see we'll see what leonardo dicaprio does with his uh his his property I'm sure he'll solve the yeah, world's but problems. Yeah, the issue, right? the issue with uh, damming up rivers, though, is that it, it messes with arable land. And as we go into the future, arable land is going to be put at a premium, you know. Mm-hmm. And like, that well, is- well, it doesn't have to. I mean, a lot of a lot of the dams they've built have been in deserts and places like that. It doesn't have to. True. It, it actually oh, it can actually enhance the arability of land because it creates irrigation potential and flood control. No. Um, but You're there's tra- there's right. there's trade offs for sure. I remember seeing the statistic is uh, the, the the dam in uh, Ukraine that just got blown and hostilities mm-hmm. and so on and, and mm-hmm. basically like re- reclaiming arable land that previously hadn't been there. Of course, Ukraine is mm-hmm. like super fertile and it's, it's basically like you know it's basically like Kansas you know as far as like deep prairie soil. But anyway, you, you know like we're talking about like you know renewable energy and nuclear energy. I mean. Frankly, that's part of the reason why I think um, the Middle East, especially because of the fact that the Saudis are so, um, I guess, like connected politically and and trying to exercise their their control right now is because they know that their time is limited with the resource that is basically, you know, (laughs) is basically powering all of their power, you know, all their political powers based on oil. I mean, revenues wise and everything. And so I think they're they're The time is marching against them and they're really kind of making a move, and which is one of the reasons why the region is so unstable. Um, and I think that the next war, the next cataclysm that's going to happen is not going to be Taiwan and it's definitely not going to be Ukraine. It'll be another Middle Eastern war, something that's really destabilizing in a meaningful way. Um, and I, I don't know, like, it, it's just, uh, what do you think about that? You know, uh, well, okay, the next okay. just to try to, I, I know we're kind of diverging a little bit from Saudi Arabia with the energy topic, but as you, as you're pointing out, it's, it's relevant. I think what's uncertain is the, 
the timeline of the role of, of fossil fuels. Um, I, and I think Lance also have stated on this show that we support developments of alternatives that are more sustainable and reliable that don't depend on the whims of a kingdom. And you know, that is not you know, within your geography, but I think the reality of the physics of energy absent nuclear, which all the people seem to not trust enough, although that's starting to change, by the way, uh, I think that's, that's coming around, fortunately. Um, but to finish up the nuclear thing real quick, since I just brought it up again, the number of accidents that have come about from fossil fuels dwarf anything from nuclear. So it's actually a very safe technology. And if it wasn't hamstrung by the, the regulatory inhibitions that it has, it would actually be a very cost effective energy as well. And it's the other, the other huge thing about it is that it's, and this is what people also miss when they look at um, the levelized costs of energy. Solar could be great, and and actually, I I fully like you know support solar as part of the mixture. But the problem is it's intermittent. Obviously, when the sun's not shining, it's not going to work. And also, if you have a a large number of clouds, yes, it it, it can work with with a certain amount of cloud cover, but it's much much less effective. Um, the, the benefit of nuclear is it's, it's a reliable, consistent base load, which is what you need to run a modern civilization. You, you can't have, uh, a meeting, uh, scheduled at, uh, 10 AM or whatever, uh, you know, in downtown New York. And when the, when the cloud, you know, moves in front of the sun, the entire city goes dark and all your computers shut off. I mean, how the hell are you going to run a modern society based on that? You have to have a base load. Okay. And that's what nuclear power is excellent at. That's what fossil fuels are excellent at because you basically, you, you can plan out your supply very predictably. You'd have a pile of coal sitting there. If you have a, you have a tank of, of uh, natural gas, it's predictable. So, and this is what Germany found out very recently when they shut all their nuclear power plants down or just about, and then Russia turned off the gas, they were effed. And so they went around the world <laughs> buying up as much natural gas as they can get a hold of, and they started opening up their coal power plants again, which is burning the worst type of coal that you can possibly burn, which is lignite, which is the dirtiest crap on the planet. And so all the, all the green people basically had their ass handed to them because their strategy of making everything based on renewables didn't work. So I think the the role of natural gas in particular, is going to be very long, uh, in the future, absent a nuclear Renaissance. And we don't even need f fusion. We can just use fission absent that natural gas is going to be around whether the environmentalists like it or not, because people are not going to put up with you know, freezing in the winter. You just have to have it. So how long is this going to go on for is the question. Well, projections of natural gas reserves, I think are in the hundreds of years. Um, at current rates. And if we do have an increase in renewables, which is fine, as long as you have a base load there, um, that might be stretched out to 300 years, 400 years. And eventually I think people will see the light and have more nuclear power, whether it's fission or fusion, I don't know. But um, I think this stuff's going to be around for a long time. Oil in particular also is extremely useful. Um, batteries are, are 
making big, big strides, but also in terms of the environmental footprint of, of, uh, batteries, the mining requirements of this stuff is just astronomical. We're going to have to like, um, quintuple or more the, the number of mines that we have in order to deliver all the copper for electrification, the lithium, obviously for the batteries. Um, and the, 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 when was the last mine that opened up, you know, in your neighborhood? I mean, if you're in certain parts of the United States or other countries, um, there used to be a lot of mines, but people don't put up with it anymore. They, they want it coming from somewhere else. I mean, I, I don't really think they think about it very hard, but it's basically, it takes 10 years, I think on average to open a mine, if you can even get it open in the United States or longer. Right. And most of this stuff for the renewable energy is coming from um, Africa and South America, where historically they haven't really had much else to sell globally. So the mining industry is actually much more supported on you know, the gov- government think- level in places like Chile, where they just nationalized the, the lithium mines. But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a mistake to, to look at the hoi polloi for policy and policy changes, because I, I think that's a fundamental mistake. And, and a, a lot of people, and a lot of my friends and stuff, especially in the United States, in the West, where we have this like ethos of you know, the, the people rule and so on and so forth. We still haven't come to the understanding that it's always the elites, you know what I'm saying, that are able to catalyze or, or block any kind of movement. And um, I, I fundamentally believe in this elite theory. And, and frankly, I, I'm very much convinced that a lot of nuclear energy being, especially since the 1990s, because the biggest threat was, of course, you know, a, a saboteur destroying a nuclear plant in the United States and causing, you know, massive casualties or something. That was the mm-hmm. fear. But mm-hmm. ever since we don't have that, like there is no real reason why. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, the, the quote unquote free market, which is not an efficient market, right? Because they're, they're causing a bubbles and economic rent as far as the energy markets are concerned. And so, you know, I consider this a lot and, you know, of course you're absolutely right about the, not just the physical, how do you say, the, the physical fuel that needs to be extracted, but nobody even talks about the logistics, the logistics of actually extracting that, the resources required to fuel the, the extracting tools, the depths right. that we have to go to, That's right. the hazards we have to hazard. The energy you know, and, required and like, to, to dig a hole is not trivial. Um, I, I recommend anybody who doubts that to go try to dig a trench with a pick and a shovel and then watch a guy with a backhoe do it in about one one hundredth the time. Um, it's unreal how powerful these machines are. And you, you are not going to do any of this without diesel fuel. Um, you know, yeah, you can electrify earth moving equipment. Sure. But you, you got to dig it up first. And the energy density of diesel fuel is, um, it's unmatched. And, and, you know, for talk about airplanes, I mean, you, you can't build an airplane that carries more than two people and go further than a hundred miles today on batteries. You, you can't carry 500 people across an ocean with batteries. It's too heavy. 
it's just too heavy. Now, you know, I, again, I encourage advancements in batteries and we have seen advancements, but we just, we're just not there yet. And we're going to be burning this stuff probably for the next 30, 40 years. Um, cause you just can't run the economy without it. Um, that's my forecast. It yep. could, could be wrong, but the politicians, they want to, they, they want to end cars, you know, by 2030. It, it's absolutely asinine and insane. And it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> You know, I really wonder what's going to happen is because in the United States, we have this like very unique issue where, you know, urban planning, I mean, city planning in general and how we like settle is so diffuse, especially compared to Europe, where it's like there's only urban centers and then, you know, it's very easy to walk around and stuff. And then there's obviously the rural areas. But if you're an American, you need a car. I mean, be, remember being a kid, you can't even hang out with your buddy because you'd have to go across freaking town just to, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you need a car for that and there's no public transport. I mean, even if you were able to implement a bus system somehow, it, it wouldn't be efficient. It, it probably be well, it, would, it wouldn't be safe fact- depending on the city you're living in. Some yeah. cities, some cities are <laughs> fine, but obviously, but yeah. 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 Good luck in New York. But, uh, you know, like, so I think really what's going to come down to is, is just necessity, the necessity of, of, you know, kind of a fait accompli as far as like the, the cost of fuel rising and also the, the unglobalizing eco- world economy. We're starting to see like a renationalizing of like strategic assets as, as far as like microchips are concerned. I'm sure you saw that. Um, but sure. I think energy production is going to be something that we're also going to be domestic, you know, making into the domestic market. Already solar is big in the United States, surprisingly, like for fabrication and panels and such. Well, um, we, we've, we've pioneered a lot of the technology, but the solar panels are mostly made in in China. They've, uh, of course, they've they've taken the IP and they've, they've used, uh, actually, I think it's a Uyghur, Uyghur labor in Western China, uh, forcibly to make that stuff and so it's you know if you if you care about human rights look, look into the the solar production in china and see what what they're doing over there jesus it's such an interesting i i don't know like the it's a it's a quandary because in the west obviously the the decision making levers the people actually in power that have positive agency over policy and so on are not immediately apparent and I mean, we see it now with the president. Well, that's by design. That's, and I think if anybody actually is trying to run things, that's probably the smart thing to do. Because I think of one of the, the, the advantages of the, the oligarch, our oligarchy for the oligarchs advantage, at least uh, that, that we seem to have in the West is that a lot of people think it's, you know, Joe Biden's fault that our policy is such and such. And I mean, sure, he has some agency too. I'm not going to say he's like uh, excusable, but it's, he's not making the actual decisions. It's, it's, it's a, it's a group of people that have a lot of money and power and, and connections that are manipulating the politicians to deflect any criticism to them towards the politicians and people, people fall for it. I mean, it's just crazy. And I think, I think it's a very clever design. Of course. And, and I think the interesting thing about the United States is that in the 50s, of course, the, the, the bureaucracies were the centers of power. People talk about the CIA and the mm-hmm. FBI and 
you know, Congress. No, you're you're, you're so right. On. You're right. The, the U.S. actually was very bureaucratic in the 50s. I, you know, some people seem to think it was like some kind of free market bastion. But I think especially after the Depression and the New Deal and World War II, my God, I mean, the, the role of the federal government was just um, unprecedented, at least historically. It's probably grown to some degree since then, but also the private sector has grown as well. So I think, relatively speaking, the 50s are actually were very corporatist in the sense that, you know, the man in the gray suit, uh, the General Motors, you know, it's very cozy with the Department of Defense and all that stuff. And so I think, yeah, I, the bureaucracy was, was big back then. Right. And, and I mean, we, we focus on that, but like since the 60s and 70s and deregulation and so on, like it really is this international group of of uh, oligarchs which are like transnational of course and I, i'm not it's not even right. like a, a dog whistle i mean really just i mean even bill gates or so on and elon musk is a perfect example i mean the guy's like south african you know what i mean right and um you know like so so here's the thing is that i think one of the most salubrious things to have happened in a dystopic way was joe biden i mean the emperor has no clothes moment man the emperor has no brain like you know, like at a certain point, I think we're starting to come to the realization um, that the West, the, the power centers are not obvious, of, of course. And when he goes to the Middle East, it's more obvious because uh, political office and power are unified, whereas, you know, here it's demurred and it's mm -hmm. held behind you know, curtains and so on and so forth. And so uh, when we talk about what's going to happen in the future and just to bring it back to the energy crisis. I mean, this is true also for the military industrial complex, which is still thriving, of course, but applying this to the energy field and the Koch brothers and so on, you know, you think to yourself that a lot of, a, a lot of agency people, you know, are, think that they're agent by voting for these like politicians or even their constituents or whatever, or maybe they can influence the journalists somehow. But the reality is at the end of the day, you know, it's the oligarchs that are able to to affect change and create narratives and capitalize off of organic movements to to their ends. And, um, you, you know, like, I, I don't know what it holds for the future, but whatever policy we come to will come when it when it becomes an issue for the oligarchs, when it becomes an issue for actually the agents of capital in the West. And it has nothing to do at all with with the government, with the average man not caring about having a coal mine. It has nothing to do with our like stupid uh, conversations with normies about you know energy and the environment stuff like that. It, it really, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to the uh, the power and the money of a, a certain class of individuals. And uh, frankly, I'm really sanguine about Elon Musk. I actually kind of personally admire him in a certain way. I don't think he and I share the same politics or anything. I don't think any of that nature. But one of the most interesting things about him is that he's one of the few open oligarchs that's popular and is a popular figurehead and who is able to actually yeah. unify you know, political power with actually his, his presence as opposed to uh, doing this kind of shady stuff that most oligarchs do, bankers and so on do, which is by proxy. So maybe it's an entrance of, uh, you know, uh, of another age, of another era where like capital and and Caesarism come in one. But I don't know. What do you think? What do you think about that? It's sort of a lot of stuff there. Uh, what, what, what's the question? What do I think about I Elon? The question is... Ooh. 
Yeah, just my question is this, is, is you know, as far as the West, and, and we can talk about the real numbers, we can talk about, uh, you know, strategic supplies and, and policy and so on, but what is the timeline for the agents, the one that actually changes the policy, you know, the, the oligarchs? Do you believe that they actually have a vested interest in nuclear? Do you think that will change in the future? Or do you think that, like, I mean, uh, I, I really want your opinion. Yeah, on no, it's, about, a, it's like, a good question. I, I think yeah, some I think some of them have a vested interest. I think Elon has been pretty public about his support for nuclear power um, and op- for obvious reasons. I mean, just from a cynical take, like his company would, would be a beneficiary of the decline of the usage of fossil fuels and an increase in electrification. Um, you know, he may, he's an electric vehicle entrepreneur as one of many business ventures he's involved in. But it's, um, I think obviously other groups in Russia and Saudi Arabia and um, the United States even who have a lot of assets and fossil fuels would be against that. So it depends. And it's like a, it's not like one, they, they, they don't all like get together at Davos and like, come up with like some master plan that they all agree to they're they're backstabbing each other you know there too they've got their own personal agendas it's really a marketplace and people are maneuver or a battlefield whatever analogy you want to use people are maneuvering for their own interest call me a cynic but i i just think that's how human nature works and what does that mean um i think we'll probably continue to see more of this bullshit where there's a lot of downplaying of the promise of nuclear power. I also think one of the problems with nuclear power is that it's actually too good. It's, it's almost like one of these things that like, just imagine like hypothetically, if, if energy was, was free, what, what a, what an unbelievably earth shattering fundamental change that would mean for everything. It's almost like, um, the whole premise of economics assumes that resources are scarce. Well, all of a sudden you have Star Trek replicators now where energy doesn't cost anything and you can do anything you want. The scarcity then is like basically intelligence. It's like you, it's not, it's not brute force anymore because they're that that's solved. The, the only real scarcity thing is, is intelligence. And then maybe artificial intelligence gets rid of that. And so what are you left with? I mean, as an economic actor, I don't know. What do you got? So the the reason I think having limited resources is useful for a society, frankly, at large, is that it creates stability and predictability and allows for levers of control over the population. And if you have something that is basically unlimited, that is fundamental to life, um, you're going to have excesses. You're going to have extreme things. I mean, energy is so powerful. It's, you know, Doomberg calls it life. I mean, it's energy is life and he's right. It, it's, it's effectively it drives everything. If you look at the correlation between GDP and, uh, energy use per capita, it's almost like a one for one. So if you had unlimited energy, yeah, the potential actually would go up, but the control mechanisms would be very unclear. And if it was coming from something like fusion power, probably would still be controllable. Uh, and that you have to have like a, a centralized node that it builds that. But if you had some kind of technology that would decentralize that, 
and everybody can be, you know, their own, their own boss, basically, you know, it would upend everything. I mean, people would stop going, stop going to work. I mean, like, what what do you need to go to work? You just turn on your little box and it it does everything for you. It, It would completely radically transform society. So whether there's like forces at work that are like trying to like keep that under, under the lid, I, I I don't know if that's true. It's it's obviously a good screenplay, but it's um, I don't have any evidence for that. But I mean, hypothetically, I could see how they they might some people might not want that. Um, so I mean, who are, who are, who are the oligarchs? I mean, you know, it depends, right? But I think people are self interested basically at the end of the day. So it depends on what their what, what how their how their bread is buttered is, is going to predict how they act. You know, because I'm a, I'm a more of a king of conjecture. I, I just think about this often, especially because of AI. AI, like basically, people are talking about AI wiping out the programming and the computer science industry. But I mean, think about broader picture and applications. It's it's wiping out accounting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. I mean, it's, it's well, <laughs> well, one second, one second. Let me make, make my argument here. But it, it's it has the potential of wiping out pretty um, basically like. You're right. You're right. Basically, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah, mid-tier uh, white-collar jobs, right. which of course it's not—it's not a massive trend, but it's—it's it's significant enough to actually introduce a massive sector of the uh, the population that's structurally unemployed. And uh, you know, mm-hmm. structural unemployment is its own challenge, of course, with income. But beyond the economics of it, a lot of government control comes down to the psychology of of grounding people's energy and time. Because it's not just enough, like, uh, you know, revolutions and upheavals happen when there's obviously an economic downturn. But the major catalyst is actually when human beings have too much time on their hands. Unironically, this mm. is how it played out in Iraq mm-hmm. and, and where the, you know, the ex bathist you know, military leaders and so on, they weren't able to secure unemploy- uh, secure employment. And it wasn't just that the economy was terrible. It was also because they had nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, the the major challenge that we'd have to face in the future of a, a post-energy scarcity future and a post-menial um, like, uh, task, technical skills future. Because at the end of the day, the that kind of world would fall into the hands of those that are basically charismatic or like some kind of creative or kind of really cutting-edge technological visionary well, thinker it, it or... would it would fall into the hands of those that control what is scarce that's really what it is why is saudi arabia economically relevant it's because they control a scarce resource if oil was like literally pouring out of the faucet everywhere i mean who, who gives a shit about mohammed bin salman nobody would care about that guy he wouldn't exist frankly he'd be he'd be another bedouin um it, it's it's very simple it's not like easy or anything, but it's, it's a simple concept to understand. If something is basically free, there's no power center there, but if something is hard to get, if you control that people are going to suck up to you or try to kill you to get what you have or, or try to grab it. (laughs) And that's really what drives competition. It's, it's people trying to grab what they want, but don't have. And if you, if everybody gets what they want, uh, well, that probably will never happen. But if they get what they want at the moment, they're probably going to find something else that they want that they don't have. And so the real question is what then is scarce? Um, 
and it's just the history of humanity and history of everything. I mean, it's like we solve these problems, but then we find other things we want. Right. So we, we figured out how to, how to grow food. Okay. Well that, that was nice. Now we don't have to run around, you know, trying to find a, an antelope or something, um, which (laughs) would take all day, by the way, we'd have no free time and we'd, you know, we'd be in good shape and everything, but we had no time to think writing didn't really happen because you know what's the point i mean we're just starving all the time but suddenly you have agriculture people have free time they start wondering oh well let's look up look let's look up oh what's that that's a constellation oh that looks like a crab oh that looks like a, a guy holding a bow and arrow Oh, that's the the Big Dipper. I mean, who knows? But people start creating all these mythologies, and then they start using the stars to navigate. It's pretty cool, right? But then you figure that out. Now we got airplanes. We don't have to like sit on a ship for two weeks across the ocean. Um, now everybody just gets on a plane and like hangs out and you know Paris Hilton style at some like hotel in some foreign country, and then comes back you know the next day. And it, it's unreal, right? But then like people get bored with that, and then they want well, let's go to Mars. I mean, it's not all bad. I mean, we, we solve these problems, but then eventually we come up with something that is scarce, that is interesting, like interplanetary existence. Okay, so I'm not necessarily pessimistic. I mean, it's it's the history of humanity to conquer these problems. I think what is a little bit scary, though, is that, and I think the pattern is pretty clear for this, the cognitive requirements for being economically relevant today are higher than ever. I mean, you talk about programming going away. I mean, that used to be considered like a really difficult thing to do. And then it started getting easier because you can go to Stack Overflow and all this shit on the internet. But AI, I mean, it's like, it'll write the code for you. Now, a lot of it is wrong. So you have to understand some of it and and fix it. But it's still, it's a huge productivity enhancer. It's like a 3X for a lot of programmers, apparently. And, uh, yep. you know, I, I use it. It's useful. I mean, I don't have to memorize stupid syntax at least. And but the, the logic <laughs> is, is still, you know, you still need to understand what you're doing, the goals and everything. And so th- th- there's going to be new stuff, but th- the problem is you have to keep leveling up your, your, your ability to use the technology and, and also still be relevant. And if the technology is so good that you're, you're literally just put out to pasture because you know you're you're the equivalent of a horse and everybody's driving cars now you're kind of screwed so i do worry about that to be honest um on a human societal level i think there's going to still be exciting stuff but if everybody has to be as smart as elon musk you know we're 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 pretty much screwed so he he actually has this thing called Neuralink, which you probably have heard of but it's basically this i think the the sort of positive interpretation of it is that it's sort of an acknowledgement that people are not going to be able to keep up with this uh, artificial intelligence stuff. So the only answer is to go the cybernetic route and basically augment the human abilities with computation. And he always, I've seen this in a million interviews he's done. He's basically said, "We're, we're already cyborgs. You know, what's that thing in your hand? It's a computer. It's a super, it's a supercomputer. And, you know, like hashtag your dad. I mean, I don't know if anybody's dad is like a lot of dads I know, but the older guys, at least they, they have like flip phones at at best. And, but it doesn't matter. They already made their money. They they have enough in the fidelity, you know, 
mutual funds or something that they can you know live out their retirement. But if they had to go into the job market and not use a smartphone and not have any of the connections that they developed throughout their career back in the 1980s or whatever, they couldn't compete. You have to have one of these things. So you don't have a choice. You have to, mm-hmm. you have to keep the latest technology at all times if you want to be economically relevant. There's just no, um, you know, unless you live, live in the exactly Amish society. The but. You're, you're, you're exactly indicating the next scarcity threshold, which is information. And that's, that's what is going to happen in a post-energy scarcity world is, is uh, who can leverage information in a meaningful way. Relevant information. I think there's, there's an information, you know, without any context overflow, but I think the ability to navigate the relevant from the irrelevant, I think will always be important. And I think you're right. That will be a differentiator. And, this is, by the way, what every stupid consultant will, you know, basically tell you is what they're doing. Like, well, you know, we're cutting out the noise. We're giving you the, the 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 executive summary. This is what you really need to focus on. And some people are more convincing than others, but um, just knowing that certain information is advantageous, or knowing that concept is not enough. You actually have to be able to do it, and that's hard. But um, and that takes intelligence. And it, you know, unfortunately, people that were gifted with brawn may have some role at the moment because AI is basically just like a, well, the, the consumer version of AI, if, let's just be clear, is basically just a, a chat bot. Um, it doesn't know how, it doesn't know how to you know build a house or, or build a bridge or do, do manual labor. But I mean, robotics are basically being designed for that stuff. And so then what are you going to do? Um, I don't know, man. It's scary. You know, that, you know, the funny thing is like when I was at the war college, of course, uh, UAS systems, which is unmanned, you know, autonomous, uh, system, uh-huh. it, 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 it's so widespread. It's becoming part of the military doctrine, but like, we're just seeing it in Ukraine. But my, my segue that I wanted to say is that even the labor of war <laughs> is being automated. Yeah. And I mean, people are really underestimating, uh, the power of this kind of, um, UAV uh, proxy that will change the face of conflict because what will happen is fun- fundamentally war will be um, like f- conventional conflict will not be as important as for instance controlling the information channels and so on and so forth and right. so like I mean you're absolutely right and, and frankly I'm, I don't think that cybernetics I think that's his PC way of saying that we're going to uh, genetically engineer people to have higher IQ to yeah 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 you could be right yeah he might not be acknowledging that because it, it's a very it's a third rail of I think society that in order to of really course. do that you're going to have to fundamentally alter what humans are and it's scary I mean you know religious people would be offended by that and I think um I know people like that and it's, it's not that I disagree with them. It's just like, I don't, I don't know if we have a choice cause it's an arms race. You know, so. my, the most convincing argument I heard for that is basically like, what's the difference between us breeding, for instance, like animal husbandry, breeding uh, ourselves right. by choice and right, right. genetic engineering. I mean, is there really any difference? No, no, just one, one is faster. Pressure. Yeah. And, and one is uh, also more actually, well, one is more natural, obviously, but one of the advantages of doing it on a slower basis is that you have, you have more time effectively to 
evaluate the results. So in other words, if, if you look into like how genetic algorithms work, they basically have all these, like, it's, it's just guesswork by the way, but it's, it's an attempt to accelerate the evolution process. And what they're doing is they're trying to guess as to what the most probable branches of a mutation are going to be that are valuable versus those that are not. And one of the things that you can screw up though, when you're sort of training a, a model like that is you can impart your biases into the system. So for example, like if you're trying to uh, mutate a, a system into something that's better, you might presuppose that, uh, well, let's just say you're, you're, you're coming up with a, a system that, you know, is like a, a robot or something that's like designed to, to shoot people like at the Terminator. Right. So you have, instead of like this, uh, this mechanical thing, you have this like organic, like creature that is like mutating. Um, and you're, you're going to, as the scientist overseeing this whole thing, you're going to basically be like, uh, well, you know, I think it, it should have more eyes then it can see more. Right. Um, and then, then you might like start like messing with the system to try to like steer it in a certain direction. And you're going to bias the results in that sense. And you might end up with something with like 50,000 eyes and then it can see everywhere, but it's covered with eyeballs. And so it has no arms. And so it's this really grotesque, obviously weird thing, but you've, you've screwed it up because you don't really know effectively unless you actually play it out, how this thing is going to work. And I think one of the advantages of natural selection and natural evolution is that you, it's done on a very long time scale and all these mutations are exposed to all these crazy different scenarios. So you're, you're basically, you're, you're running an experiment on an almost, uh, infinite number of, of potential scenarios. And the more scenarios you have to evaluate the, the fitness of something, the more validatable your, your data is going to be. So that's one disadvantage of having this like laboratory approach where you're, you're basically kind of engineering the future. You're, you're presupposing a lot of things. So I think I made my point, but it's, um, yeah, like I, I, I think that's the, the challenge, right? Because I mean, even just for instance, transitioning to a post scarcity, uh, post energy scarcity environment, um, the the challenge to maintain stability is real, and we're getting to the point, right, in a kind of tower, tower of Babel situation, where if we become so destabilized globally, it's likely that the human race won't be able to rescale that technological innovation. Because, for instance, even the precious metals and like uh, a lot of the the material that we use, uh, especially from the earth. Those things are very hard to salvage, and they're getting more and more difficult to actually extract from the Earth's surface. And that's my biggest concern: is that the people that are, you know, at the forefront of these kind of things, they they've entered into a Faustian pact. And I don't mind pushing the barrier. I don't mind like actually getting into this, but I don't think they have the the agency or the presence of mind to consider the things that you've considered and said. And and that's that's the the scariest part. It's not necessarily the fuck ups. It's not the uh, the outliers or the the freaks that are going to come out of those experiments. Or if that happens, if that future happens, it's whether or not the system works. And that's the concern I have. Yeah, I mean, we'll just see. It's it's basically 
it's the history of everything, right? You've, you've got people trying, <laughs> trying stuff and, and things break. Um, I, I don't know if there's any other, like, like a lot of people on the internet, especially with podcasts and stuff, they, they kind of get into these like echo chambers where we're sort of like talking amongst ourselves about like, Oh, wouldn't it be great? Yeah, sure. But it's like, this is basically like, you know, fantasy land. Like I, I, the real world is basically a bunch of very competitive actors trying to vie for their interests. And how do you steer that? I mean, like, how do you actually control that? I, you have to be an exceptional person and exceptional group of people to do that. And unless you're exceptional, this is just an opinion, right? So we, um, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I mean, I, I, I'm not, hopefully I'm not naive enough to think that I have the ability to steer the general direction. I obviously have some ability to steer my sphere of influence, right? And I, but I think the goal is first to be realistic about what your sphere of influence is. And if you want to change that sphere of influence or grow it, you also need to be realistic about how to do that. And I think a lot of people are very naive in that they, if they think, well, if we just get the philosophy right, or if we just write down our manifesto, it's all going to change. No, it's not. There have to be people who actually then be, uh, I think we were talking about this before the show who are inspired by that. And then I would, I would add are incentivized to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, to use like an analogy from Silicon Valley, the whole like 2010s era of social media was really about that. It was effectively, we're going to fund companies like Facebook and stuff that are building platforms for other people to build their life on it's like did did facebook come up with actually all the valuable content on their platform no it's everybody who's using it putting their photos and thumbing up or whatever liking and sharing stupid stories about their cat that made the place engaging to most people um and that was the genius of it because the company itself didn't have to do it. Like the old model, like before that was like, okay, uh, we need to create a place people want to come to. So we're going to hire a bunch of writers and hire a bunch of artists and make a magazine that people are going to buy a subscription to. Facebook didn't have to do that. The genius of that was their quote unquote customers that didn't even pay them anything did it for them. So you have billions of people building your content effectively that you can then sell ads onto. I mean, it's genius. So if if you really want to talk about making change, you have to think at scale and look at models that actually deliver that type of change at scale because we're just individuals. But if you can create a system that has other people doing your work for you, that's the ticket. That's the genius. And you could say it's political ideology that is, is infectious, that people really want to get behind, or it's it's a business model, or it's a platform like Facebook, whatever. But these are realistic, good examples of proven models for getting things done. Um, and unless you're sitting on you know Saudi Arabian levels of oil, which, let's be honest, they didn't do anything to earn, um, you're going to have to fight <laughs> and work for it. It's not easy. This stuff is hard. And I think one of the reasons why countries that don't have natural resource wealth 
actually do better in the long run is because the people and the culture that's built around those people start with the assumption of scarcity because then you have to be creative. Then you have to be smart. Then you have to plan. And Norway is a weird exception, but they only found that stuff recently. So they had, they had many centuries of winter to get smart and get disciplined and get plan oriented and create a social system that worked efficiently. Okay. The Saudis, they were basically just running around on camels, you know, for centuries and, you know, coming mm-hmm. up with uh, visions of, of Allah and stuff like that. And they were, you know, fine, but they had a lot of cool art and stuff, but they, um, they were a, a conquering people, which to me is, is like, okay, you know, there's certain, certain respect level there, but they were not a, a conqueror doesn't create anything. He takes, I've always admired the people that make things out of nothing. And that to me is like, you know, a, an inventor, a worker, you know, that takes straw and spins it into, you know, a rope or something like that. I mean, that, that to me, that's, that's adding value. It's not extractive. It's not a, a win lose. It's a win win. And I think the mathematics mm-hmm. of that over time have proven to be a better model than those that, that seek to just steal things. Um, or do nothing to earn what they have. So anyway, end of speech, but no, I I love, I love this, like, like perspective that you give. And it's interesting. Of course, your call signs, Adam Smith, you know, and, um, uh, your perspective of of the world and and what comes as a primacy, like what has primacy in the actions of the world. And and for you, it's very technic and it's, it's, it's material, it's economic. And for me, I feel like, this is something that a lot of economists miss the boat on is that fundamentally the conditions for the market are predicated on a condition of like stability, which is bought by coercive force. And, um, of course, GWAT was a great experience because of the fact that it was a 20 year laboratory of, of humanity. Right. <clears throat> and we were basically able to understand that techniques can only get so far mm-hmm. and fundamentally what, sets the conditions for people to be creative or to to do innovation or to do this or that um, always relies on political power. And political power, as I keep on saying, is force. Uh, everything else is uh, secondary. And so, yes, I understand that you say, you know, conquering peoples, they, they appropriate the, the, the almost like, you know, they came upon a pasture and they saw cattle and everything was fine. But it's actually uh, really the inverse. It's it's the the conqueror that sets the condition for for wealth. I mean, think about for instance the Roman Empire. It's it's the Roman Empire's conquering ability to have a peaceful economic zone. Well, that's the part that creates the stability for people to then have the confidence that their their investments in the future are not going to be taken away. But it's it's not the act of taking away that creates anything. It's the creating the order, I think, that gives people the faith to then plan their future within that order. So, for example, if you take a country like Mexico, which I I will try to withhold my opinions on (laughs) back, but I think it's fair, fair to say that the people who live in that country are, are scared out of their minds of the fucking cartels and they're not as motivated to build a business or do anything without fear of it being expropriated by these guys. 
And if you take that fear away, e.g. have a political order that respects property rights, people will be more confident in investing in that future. And you could say that the Roman Empire was an example of that and that now it was corrupt, by the way, where a lot of the senators would steal shit from people. And it, it used to be arguably better under the Republic as opposed to the empire in that regard. But um, I, I, I don't disagree that having some sort of strong political system in place is important for having people make material investments. And I also would say that I, I'm not just purely material. I, I also think that things are immaterial uh, well, and not in the literal sense, but just things that are important that are not material also exist, like having virtues and honor and, and sense of, you know, all that stuff and, and spiritual respect and believing in, in things bigger than, than us, you know, that it's on this earth. But I think the material is also important because we wouldn't be sitting here talking for hours without food and energy and all that stuff. So you can't do all these other things without that. Um, I don't know if I, I sufficiently explained my, my perspective on that, but what, what do you think about, you know, the, the role of a political order? So for me, I think you and I come from different positions, of course. And for me, like, I mean, all civilization is predicated on, on, on violence and I'll keep on saying this, but you know, I, I acknowledge your examples and I understand that, but I think that's downstream from the primary source. And I think the wider reason for this podcast, for our discussion and for sharing it to people listening is that, you know, you're, you're asking me, how, how do we become agent? How do we change the future to meet our vision? And fundamentally, yes, of course, you can go downstream and use the avenues of approach that are economic or technical or, you know, even more subtle, uh, you know, all the way down kind of in a material world. However, I think as I was trying to allude to GWAT, and, or, which is the global war on terror of that era, which ended, by the way, uh, just last year, pretty interesting, um, was the fact that we were defeated by a far, far less technologically advanced, but yet motivated uh, enemy. It was like, you know, and, and I get what you're going to say. You're going to say that a lot of it was facilitated by the material world, and I understand that. But I think that the first principle should always be the agent. It should be like, I guess, uh, philosophically speaking, the the soul or so, uh, whatever you want to call it. But I think that the future lies in the hands of those, just as you said, uh, the ones that are able to inspire humanity at any great cost and say what you will about the Islamists and, and how backwards and barbarous they are. But for whatever reason, they're able to catalyze and mobilize a extremely motivated and dedicated group of not just men, but women as well and form a differing worldview. And let us not forget as well as the, as time goes on due to, because of uh, economic pressures, the, the increasing uh, polarization of IQ I think that we're headed for some very interesting times in which a lot of economically excluded classes of people are going to be a lot more prone to being politically catalyzed in an anarchic kind of way, and almost like in a Bronze Age kind of 
um, collapse scenario. But I mean, I don't know if I really address your contention or rather your, your thesis about yourself, but I think, you know, of course, everything is important. It's a whole system. Um, but it starts with the axiom of the soul. It starts with you taking positive control of obviously your sphere of influence and expanding that sphere of influence. And right. so I, I guess, yeah. you know, go ahead. I, I'm just more sanguine about the ability to actually change even when, uh, let's say, the material world wouldn't really indicate success. That's what I'm trying to say. Sure. No, I, 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 think, I think we agree that the, the soul is, is, is fundamental. And um, I hope I'm not trying to say it's not, or at least sound like I'm... I'm <laughs> I, I I'm not trying to sound theocratic it's, either. I, it's really hard to give like objective terms to things that are really kind of just philosophical. Well, well what I would, what I would, what I would change yeah. It. The only thing I'd ask is like, what is your goal? I mean, my goal is is not to be in 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 an octagon my entire life. I, I think as a man, it's important to be able to defend yourself and maybe fight for things that you think are, are worth fighting for, but. Uh, you know, conflict at the expense of another man's life to me is, I think, a very primitive way of looking at civilization. I think um, it, it's it's maybe a necessary component of the, the reality that we live in, but I don't want to create a fundamental society based on that that tenet, you know, as its foundation. Uh, I think it's it's a it's an aspect for me that war is is part of life and fighting and and all that stuff because sometimes you know words are not enough and sometimes your your differences are irreconcilable but i think one of the the benefits of of having a a nonviolent society is again there are other actors in that society that do have things to contribute that can actually make their way in life and not get basically hit over the head with a club I mean, if violence is really the, 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 the key determinant to power, um, West African people would probably be, you know, in charge of everything, but I don't think we'd ever get to Mars to be blunt. Okay. Of course. And the reason West African people are not in charge of the world is because people with brains came up with things called firearms and other things. <laughs> I'm just being honest here. And it's like, the basis of their societies are obviously I'm making a caricature out of this. That's not just about people hitting each other with clubs, but West African people are very muscular males, especially, and they have uh, certain physical characteristics based on where their environment evolved them to be that make them somewhat, good runners and, and somewhat muscular. Now they apparently are actually not the strongest people in the world, but I'm just making a sort of simplistic point to show that like pure violence, I don't think is necessarily the fundamental basis for a strong society. I think there's a lot of other things like intellect, like uh, discipline, like honor and virtue and, and reliability, creativity, um, thoughtfulness, considerateness, um, you know, there's feminine values of, you know, caretaking and, and empathy and all these things that I think have contributed mm -hmm. in, in many great ways to other things, artwork, uh, cultural innovations, uh, scientific advances, uh, architectural wonders. 
these things are wonderful to me. And I, I, I'm a, I'm a pretty pro Western European civilization guy. And I think some of that was based on war for sure. Absolutely. No question about it, but I don't think it was necessarily the basis of it. And I could be, I could be mistaken, but I think there's lots of other things that couldn't happen if you solely had violence. And I'm not sure if that's what you're saying, but I'm just trying to differentiate between where I'm coming from and maybe what some people might read into and what you're saying, but I'll, I'll let you clarify right. hopefully. Let, let, let me like, I guess, uh, give me like a, a solid five minutes here so I can explicate myself. I think when I make the emphasis about violence and about its foundational value as um, a sta stabilizing force of political order and so on and so forth, of course you need a philosophy, you know, a raison d'etre, you need uh, technology, you need all these things that you just aforementioned. Now, in the context of this podcast and this conversation, we're, we're talking about the utility, right? The utility of exactly with the position we're in, the context we're in, right? And so the issue with the West isn't that we aren't technologically advanced enough or have enough wealth, um, even if you're just a middle-class dude uh, with an association of your friends and so on and so forth of like our issue is not access to technology our our issue is our access to the will to impose ourselves onto the world and fundamentally i guess to get philosophical here and i, I hate to do that because I, I know that myth of the 20th century is uh it's mostly about you know real world stuff tangible like hard facts no 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 it, it's not just no, no I, I that's that's more mainly me but i mean i think my other co-hosts are much more <laughs> Uh, like what you're talking about. And I, and I agree with everything you've said, by the way, so far. So go ahead. Okay. So uh, the, the issue with wealth, and I, I mean, the, like everyone knows the term decadence, right? But what it is is atrophy. And it's a grounding of energy. And it's something uh, like we have to take into account the organic process of life. And what happens organically when you atrophy and, and lose something, the foundational thing that we're losing is that will to give up the material for something that is our vision of the future. And so again, full circle to what I'm saying is this is for the benefit of those of our friends, our patriots of the West in general, you know what I mean? And, you know, first of all, I'm not advocating anyone do anything crazy. So don't pin that on me. I'm saying that from an academic perspective, you have to understand that the reason why we lost in certain conflicts, I mean, from Vietnam and so on, is just simply the will to continue and fight. I mean, if you remember even the social wars or like uh, fighting uh, the, the First and Second Punic War, the, the Roman Republic lost by proportion to its population. I think it was something ridiculous, like 40% of its pop adult male population uh, fought in those wars to overcome uh, the Carthaginians. Wow. And history is replete. With that. Yeah, it's, it's really ridiculous. So people talk, they, they cite World War II for its carnage. But remember, the population of the earth was a lot less back then. And so the proportionality of it is different. And so I, I guess what I'm trying to make the point here is that the future belongs to, first of all, the ones that are able to. Okay, that's the issue with the West. The Western have, has become so domesticated so prone to pacifism, um, so given to only reacting instead of imposing. That's the thing. Even when you were telling me, for instance, about your, the place of conflict in your life, 
in your paradigm. It's always reactive. It's defensive. It's not, it's not an imposition. And just to quote my favorite philosopher, I think he's actually pretty accurate about the reality of the world, is that all life at base is fundamentally expropriation and imposition. And like that is the fundamental issue that faces us in the West. It's not a question of material. It's not a question of um, all the myriad things that you know we've been innovating for for the last thousand years. You know, since the you know uh, since the advent of Western civilization, since 800 AD or so. Our issue today is finding the will in ourselves to act and make the material reflect our insides, because it all starts with the will and then it goes out we don't we're not jared diamonds here we're not leftists we're not the i mean i mean most people are the products of their environment but i'd like to think that people of our persuasion our environments are products of ourselves and so uh, that's why i kind of cite the importance and need for people to learn the basic things that the ancient greeks learned which is leadership philosophy and the understanding of warfare at its critical basis, at its political basis. And I'm not even just talking about the techniques of, oh, look at my gun, look at the tactics, look at the ambush here, this and that. It is actually translating the psychological or the physical victory to the psychological victory. And he who can do that and bear any pain or agony in its, like, in its um, imposition, he wins. Unless, of course, you're exterminated. But that really rarely happens. But that's kind of my main theory of the situation. And I'm trying to address our context in our day now. And maybe someone hears it and is inspired in the future to kind of incorporate that going on. So that's kind of like my contention with, the, with your worldview, I guess, maybe to address it. I'm not sure specifically what you disagree with. I, I think I, I agree with most of what you said. Um, the only thing I'd maybe phrase differently personally is uh, the, the use of the word expropriate. Um, one of the definitions of it is uh, the action of dispossessing someone of property. And I think that's fine if that's your enemy. But one of the reasons I don't like necessarily making that a part of the civilization is that basically it says you're free to steal. And I think the reason that's bad is you, again, you have a, an environment that rewards thugs that don't actually create anything. And then that's effectively your, your living, the parasites basically start running everything. And you could argue that's our society today, but, um, I, I have no, no sympathy or empathy for, for those that are parasites and those that have, have, taken over things through rent seeking or uh, coercive means that didn't earn it. I think those people don't deserve any pity and I think they can be expropriated right back from them. But uh, that's something reserved <laughs> for your enemy. For your people, you don't steal from them. That's the only thing I want to clarify. Yeah, yeah. And, and like I said, I, I think I'm not really make, doing justice to what I'm trying to emphasize. It's not necessarily a, an argument of difference. It's an argument of emphasis. And, um, y you know, like, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, you can't have a high tech, high functioning society if you're constantly living in, you know, basically modern Paris or Marseille. You know what I mean? You, you can't exactly do that if someone's knifing you for, no. for something petty. You know what I mean? And, and that's what makes uh, some civilizations except, uh, exceptional and others not. 
right or not at all and so yeah, yeah no absolutely yeah. and that's why i started lance's legion is is mostly to address this dichotomy or at least to i don't know re-inspire or reinvigorate a western man into being that uh, being comfortable with that because you'd be surprised adam like a lot of people have become soft and I think it has a lot to do with the material. You think I'd be surprised by that? <laughs> okay. I think so. I think so. I, think, I, I, I don't think, know about that, but okay, go ahead. <laughs> I think maybe you're a little bit more of a pessimist. Uh, you, you think that you're more of a pessimist than you are, but I think, I think you're an optimist secretly. I can mm. see it. You know what I mean? No, and, I mean, uh, I is it the Faustian spirit or whatever? I, I, I completely like that stuff. Um, I mean, but you said you, you, you think I'd be surprised if to learn that people are soft. I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, on this show, I'm always complaining about how fat people are and how lazy people are and you know, how, how they spend their time on stupid stuff. I mean, I, I think, I think Americans are very soft. Um, I'm surprised you think I'd be surprised to, to, to discover that. Well, I mean, I would even go one step further. Like, uh, what I'm trying to get at the, the the core of is like something as probably macabre as I'm I'm talking about physically being cruel or the inability to to, for instance, like a lot of the, our issues are are political political issues that are happening that the communists are taking over is that they're capitalizing on this the the guilt the guilt. Yes. Okay. I think I know what you mean. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. And, and and that's why they're able to manipulate us. Now like uh that's what I mean by being soft. It's like okay. we're we've become so unaccustomed to like, you know, fighting. Really yeah, like it's just incredible. I mean, the majority of us are slaves. That's really the di- the Right. But, but let that- me ask you the real question here. Like if if you're uh unless you're Spartacus or something like what do you really realistically expecting people to do? I mean, do you want them to just like uh, start throwing things at people like who did something wrong to them? I mean, the, the consequences to that are, are pretty severe in our society. Of course. So there's a reason people are pacified It's because the punishments are pretty high for doing anything otherwise. And yes, mm-hmm. if everybody all of a sudden stood up and, and, and went on strike, sure, I guess. But then like, what, what is the goal then? I mean, the problem I have with unions, I guess, is that sometimes they're right, but then their solution is basically just give me more money. They don't actually like create anything themselves. They're not, they don't respect what management's role really is. And management maybe doesn't respect what the labor's role is. Okay. Vice versa. So I'm not saying one is like necessarily morally authoritative here, but one of my frustrations with unions is that you, you talk to a lot of people in unions and they, some of them are cool and, and I'm not saying everybody, but, um, and some of them have legitimate complaints, but there also is corruption on that side where they will basically use the strike as an excuse to not do their share of the work. They use it to get pay raises without actually improving the output of their own work and you end up with, you know, the, the big three automakers getting crushed when they're actually exposed to a very ferocious competitor out of Japan and now probably China who have people that are hungrier, literally, and also more disciplined and more group oriented where they don't think it's a us versus them 
thing. They actually work with management and management also respects them more. So it's both ways, but it's more of a family thing. And they outcompete those that are wasting all their time bickering and moaning about, you know, an extra day off where their competitors are working Saturdays. And it's, it's like, I, I don't know what people expect when they, they think, you know, we're just going to go back to the 1950s with the protectionism. I, I'm, I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but it's I kind of no, forgot no, my, my, my point. It. But uh, just, just just go back to what you were saying before I interjected so I, I don't ramble on too no, much. No. Here. Um, I think you're, you're, you're spot on. I mean, like, it's not enough to, to... Okay, so like brute violence and force, of course, the difference between a warlord or a thug or a mafioso and legitimate government right legitimate governance or king or whatever yeah is um big big underline on legitimate which is hard to get by the way but the the hypothetical like uh philosopher king kind of guy right like the he actually is a good 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 ruler right we want that guy A, a father figure i think that's the primordial example is is someone that deals out tough love right as opposed to someone who's sure. rapacious sure exactly and and yeah. you're absolutely yeah. you're absolutely correct and that's the uh challenge moving from the 20th century the myth of the 20th century right is like you know it, it was this uh conflict between three contending visions for the future and obviously mm-hmm. you know fascism was killed Communism died on, on the vine and then liberalism, I don't know, self-imploded or, you know, I guess in the words of Dugan, he said it transmuted and became just part of the noumenal world. You know, it just became like the background against which huh. we act. Right. Uh-huh. It, it's just pervasive. And so the challenge for us now is finding that kind of, I guess, a, a view to the future, a vision of the future that inspires us. It's that, you know, uh, a perfect city on the hill, uh, that thing that kind of inspires all the kind of different demographic classes to act, especially the ones of the elites. And I think that will have a lot to do with futurism. It'll, I mean, like the Elon Musk vibe of futurism uh, mixed with something, I don't know, but like Dugan talks a lot about this. I'm for the record, I am not a fan of Dugan. Please, I swear to God, if someone DMs me like with hate mail one more time, I'm going to lose my mind. But he does wow. point out some salient. <laughs> yeah, seriously, it's it's uh, it's almost like Americans forgot uh, what it's like. You know, it's right to learn even from your enemy. You know, it's almost like Agreed. Americans really don't get it. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, he, he does point out some salient points and that, you know, these three different ideologies are no longer uh, viable to address the future because they have been discredited so thoroughly. I mean, liberalism is still in the process of decaying, but I think you and I can both agree that even self-described liberals are post-liberals. They're not liberals in the classical Adam yeah. Smith sense. Yes, know? I agree. And yeah. so, well, they're they're not liberal. So, I mean, they're they're really not. They're they're sort of progressivist, which has a objective to basically impose communism through other means. And it's how do you impose communism? You basically use uh, laws and force to create a unnatural world, frankly. And I think that's anti-liberal and I'm not even saying like pure liberalism is the way to go either. Cause as we just discussed having a anarchy, I mean, you're not going to be able to have a pin factory that Adam Smith liked so much. You, you need to have some order too, but in any case, go ahead. And I think I would offer here, I'm 
I'm, I really hate the people that offer only critiques or point out mistakes or issues that there are, and they don't even suppose a, a remedy, you know, like right, that's one right, of the things right. that I love that I learned. And for me, for me, I think that the future will belong to those that are able to articulate the Faustian, how do you say, spirit in a kind of ideological form, or I don't even think, I think we're post ideological. What matters to us now is experience. We're living in a thoroughly existential um, era, right? Like even more so than the 1920s, 30s and 40s. And uh, the emphasis there is, is so much more. And what captivates people is that feeling, that feeling of life, of vitality, of experiences. I mean, notice even ad advertisements for, uh, to, you know, how they, they, they market cars or the rap music that people talk about conflict and this and that and the feeling and the existence. And he who can posit a vision of the future that kind of, quote unquote, I hate that word because communists have subverted, but empowers people to that feeling of fullness, that feeling of purpose, um, you know, a mission, a meaning in life. Mm -hmm. If we can give that to people, I think we would win. And that's and to bring it back to when I said when I was trying to make my wider point about the Islamic insurgents in the Middle East, the Middle East, and the yep. wider world, that at least Islam. Well, they've inspired people. They, they've inspired people for sure. Yeah. I mean, really, fanatically, fanatically, and like I think we can't really. We can't understate how much of an, a, a powerful effect that is. I mean, it's beyond just like uh, hacking someone's brain, you, you know, and like that's what's well, I, th I, th I think I think the uh, the Vietnamese had it, you know, in their conflict in the American War, as they call it, or as we'd call the Vietnam War. But it was um, <laughs> obviously something they were deeply passionate about. And I, I don't think I've ever discounted the the role of that I, I absolutely agree with you that inspiration and passion are prime movers in all this stuff i just don't think it's sufficient i think it's it's necessary but not sufficient mm -hmm. i think there's more to it than that but um yes i'm not discounting the value of it at all i like it of course and, and yeah like i I think you're absolutely right. I mean, humans are such an interesting creature. But we're interesting creatures because of the fact that we have this like different dimension to us that like, I mean, we're going to argue about agency and whether it exists or not, or whether we're completely mechanistic. But I think it's pretty possible to say that even if it is mechanistic, that it's so intricate, it almost verges on true agency, right? No matter what we do. And so that kind of question becomes moot and it's like, when we step forward into the future, I mean, how boldly will we step forward to? And I think what we need to get over in the West is the nihilism, man. I, I don't I really understand, but like, I, I don't know if you've ever met like a Zoomer, like actually spoken to them, like my sister's a Zoomer. And, you know, it's, uh, it's such a completely demoralizing perspective of life that it completely, hmm. it stops action. I mean, I, I'm kind of yeah. trailing on here, but no, no, I, I, I just kind I of think, I think you're not wrong in many cases. I think that's, uh, I think that's a, a normal psychological reaction, though, to a world in which you grow up in where you don't really have any any impact on. I mean, you, you like the the biggest impact a Zoomer has. It seems like is like them getting a big following on on TikTok, and and that's just such a pathetic. Uh, consolation prize to anybody who 
you know, grew up maybe like our, our grandparents who had to like, you know, fight a little bit harder for material things, but they also tre- treasured it more and also had, you know, family and things that are more traditional and were more tangible. And I think that, I think that's had a very deeply psychologically detrimental effect on the, on the younger generations and our generation as well. in that we have less and less, uh, agency in our, our environment. It's like, we're, we're sort of, we've missed like the, the boom times and we're just sort of living on the fumes. And it's, uh, I think it's a normal reaction as a defense mechanism to become somewhat nihilistic because you're always disappointed when you try to do anything because you always fail. And I, I, I'm agreeing with you that the way you get out of that is you try to inspire people to, to keep trying to try harder and maybe to try different things. But what I would also add though, is eventually what's going to keep people going is you have to show them some success. It can't just be this, this like word salad where people are like, Oh, you know, just keep trying, you know, like, I think we spoke offline. I mean, that's what Hitler told the soldiers at Stalingrad, you know, the German soldiers. It's like, <laughs> you guys just need to keep, keep trying. And they, they, I think they, they got like a, um, a shipment of metals like that were, that were sent to these guys that were like freezing to death and being shot, you know, by Soviet snipers and all that crap. And, and just like their toes were falling off cause it was so cold. And the, um, I think the, the German high command sent them like some like shitty, like bronze medals or something to like reward them for their sacrifice. And they just like, they, they, they threw it in like a dumpster or something like that. They're like, fuck you. You're like, this is getting ridiculous. And so you have to show people something for their efforts at some point. That's the only thing I'd say, because eventually people are just going to stop and they're going to turn into zoomers. So you can't do that. You have to do better. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and like I would add to that too. I think you're absolutely right. Like you have to, it has to have tangible reciprocity. You know, when you give yourself, you want something from it. It can't yeah. just be like give, give. I mean, even if just from a psychological basis. But I think the binding, I think the Achilles heel of liberalism is that it killed itself. I mean, if you've ever had the misfortune of reading uh, Hannah Ardrent or, uh, you know, uh, John Rawls or any of these idiots, you know what I mean? Like, you'd have the understanding that they even admit um, that the the feature of liberalism is that there is no ar- overarching mission, that everyone is free to do their own little mission. And the issue is that, you know, uh, like, people are okay with menial jobs and tasks and menial lives if it has a greater context. But when you just have a menial life with no context, just an abyss, I mean, are we really surprised that people are nihilistic? Well, there was a great example of that during the space program back when the United States was like doing the opposite of what you're talking about. It's like kicking ass basically. And during the, uh, the, like the Apollo mission specifically, they they found uh, somebody, some news crew or something. I think they found like a black janitor somewhere um, sweeping up like some hallway. And they asked him, hey, what do you do here? And I mean, kind of a dumb question maybe, but something to the effect like that. And it's like, oh, I, I'm helping helping us get to the moon. It's like, damn right you are. And And that's what motivates people. They're part of something that's important, you know. 
You know, I love this conversation because we've already identified two elements that are necessary or requisite in something a vision of the future would be. And frankly, I think the greatest thing about Americana, and I, I know I'm going to get a whole bunch of eye rolls, but it's the, the spacefaring. It's the UFO stuff. It's, it's like... Uh, no, it's the frontier you know, spirit. It's the, fr it's the frontier spirit. Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, that's, that's really the future. And um, I don't know. Obviously, it's something that some philosopher or like ideologue is going to be able to kind of synthesize and put down. But that's something that will move people to to you no, know, it it, it will. And anybody body. who complains about that, they can shut up. I mean, it's it, that's that's just sour grapes. Like they have nothing going on in their lives, and it's pretty obvious to anybody who knows anything. I mean, you you need to have a cause. You need to have something that's a cause celeb. You need to have something that that's inspiring. And I mean what's more inspiring than outer space. I mean, it's pretty cool, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I think, uh, like you read Nietzsche, you read a lot of philosophers and, and they say that, you know, the religion of a, of a people, it's not like arbitrary. It's not just like phantasms. Actually, it's a, a kind of, um, superstitious expression of a people's mission. And I think that's why there's so much dissolution is that we need that kind of, quasi uh religious mission sure that will like organize us together and uh, you know even marxism which is a very materialistic you know yes. uh, ideological ideolo ideology it's still a religion in many senses but i mean we're kind of strayed far from the from the kingdom and i think that the future doesn't belong to saudi arabia i don't think the future belongs to uh the monarchy that they have or any of the idiots over there in the Middle East, I think the future belongs to us. I mean, what do you think about that? Well, if history's any guide, we'll, we'll probably have an okay future. Um, I think we need to relearn maybe some of the things that uh, made us great. I don't, you know, I'll, I'll recycle some Trump, Trump stuff here. You know, America used to be pretty good, but it's, um, it's fallen behind. And I think a lot of that has to do with a lot of other countries of, have noticed America and, and learned from it and caught up and in some ways outpaced it and good on them, by the way, nothing to take away from their accomplishments. It's just that I think, yes, there are nefarious forces in the world that are doing things that are maybe unfair, but that's history. That's life. Um, and I think maybe one of the coolest things about being an American is, we do have a relatively speaking a, a, a indomitable will and a a belief that we can do better than just what we've what, what our ancestors had and if if we're doing worse than our ancestors we need to get up our off our fucking ass and, and do better I gotta say, like I, I lived in Brazil. I've lived in some pretty crap holes, and I've lived in Europe, which is another crap hole. And I, I think that's one of the visions or, or like differences that you see culturally. I mean, especially if you speak the native language of another culture. I mean, you really get into their kind of uh, collective psyche. And uh, I think the French, the, most... the French are like the worst example of this negative bullshit, where they they think everything is like it's not worth it, man. They're just they're so I I don't know lazy. I mean it's it's like 
Germans can be very negative too, but at least they, they work their ass off. And it's like, I I just, the French, absolutely like no disrespect meant. I mean, there's like a lot of cool history there and accomplishments too, but something about this like welfare attitude is just, I don't know. I just don't like it. Dude, that that's the thing. And, And at the risk of sounding like a advertisement or an American advertisement, like the difference between us and the rest of the world is like, sure, yeah, the Chinese do stuff, everyone does stuff, but few dream. And I, I really think that's our, our like main virtue is that we dream and we're bold and we, we succeed. And like, I think that's just what people need is a message of hope, a message of reminder, you know, to always attack in that way. And, and I see it everywhere. I see it in you. I see it in like your, your colleagues. I see it when I go to work and I, because I've had the the fortune of spending half my life in other countries, you know, and, and being a polyglot myself, it's something that I really appreciate about the American people, and it's what's going to save it, and it's going to save the rest of the world. I, I really do believe that. Great Britain is a small country. It's much smaller than yours. Small population compared with some. It's small, but it's great. And why? Because it has guns. Because it has discipline. Because it has a navy. Because of this, the English go where they please and strike where they please, and this makes them great. Right. Mr. Lawrence, that'll do. Lieutenant Lawrence, sir, is not your military advisor. But I would like to hear his opinion. Damn it, Lawrence! Who do you take your orders from? From Lord Faisal, in Faisal's tent. Old fool! Why turn from him to him, their master and man? My lord, I think, I think your book is right. The desert is an ocean in which no oar is dipped. And on this ocean, the Bedou go where they please and strike where they please. This is the way the Bedou has always fought. You're famed throughout the world for fighting in this way. And this is the way you should fight now. I don't know. I'm sorry, sir, but you're wrong. Fall back on Yenbo, sir. And the Arab rising becomes one poor unit in the British army. What is this to you? Lawrence, do you know you're a traitor? No, no, Colonel. He is a young man, and young men are passionate. But they must say their say. But wiser people must decide. I know you are right. Very well, sir. When shall we move? The sooner the better. You'll lose another 50 men tonight. You tread heavily. But you speak the truth. I will give you my answer tomorrow. And now... uh... It is late. Colonel Brighton means to put my men under European officers, does he not? In effect, my lord, yes. And I must do it, because the Turks have European guns. But I fear to do it. Upon my soul, I do. The English have a great hunger for desolate places. I fear they hunger for Arabia. Then you must deny it to them. You are an Englishman. Are you not loyal to England? 
to England and to other things. To England and Arabia both? And is that possible? I think you are another of these desert-loving English. That is... Stanhope. A Gordon of Khartoum. No Arab loves the desert. We love water and green trees. There is nothing in the desert. No man needs nothing. Or is it that you think we are something you can play with? Because we are little people. A silly people. Greedy, barbarous, and cruel. What do you know, Lieutenant? In the Arab city of Cordoba were two miles of public lighting in the streets when London was a village. Yes. You were great. Nine centuries ago. Time to be great again, my lord. Which is why my father made this war upon the Turks. My father, Mr. Lawrence, not the English. But my father is old. And I... I long for the vanished gardens of Cordoba. However, before the gardens must come the fighting. To be great again, it seems that we need the English or... Oh. What no man can provide, Mr. Lawrence. We need a miracle.